just a good old boy Never meaning no harm Beats all you never saw Been in trouble with the law Since the day they was born Good old boys I'm Mark Bog Beef Today we're joined by Michael Anton I have no idea how to introduce you by uh, You know, career or anything Because you you get around Bounced around, can't keep a job <laughs> It's really strange to look at your sort of body of work and the things that you talk about because we have a very peculiar mix of things that we talk about. And uh, it's, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how that is, but uh, uh, I, I, to some extent, I think we're fascinated by the same things, which I'm sure you don't know. But uh, just for one thing in particular, which, of course, one of the reasons why people have been asking us for, to interview you for a long time, because we talk about Caesar a lot. Yeah. I, I've been personally fascinated by Caesar my whole life, but even into things like, so Machiavelli, yes, but uh, I saw, you know, you have an article about uh, the dandy, which by the way, is, you know, I'm, which I'm sure you know, the, the concept of the dandy is an important topic if you want to know about Caesar, you know? Yeah. It's a, uh, which is, I don't know, that, that was impressive, especially you as a, uh, a speechwriter and of course for uh, Mr. Trump. Well, I'm happy to be here. So I'm, I mean, I'm happy to talk about all of those things. So wherever, wherever you want to start it, um, we can take it from there. Anything that, that you look up about the progressives and stuff, there's the same sort of third party, like, uh, well, can he, like, just complaining about, like, uh, uh, meta of, the, of you saying, uh, of you suggesting certain things, like, that you did it. And this is the thing, uh, I know that you're a, uh, you're a Machiavelli guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm a scholar of my. I mean, I I try not to describe myself as a Machiavelli. I mean, there are things I wouldn't do or stoop to. But um, then again, it's an open question as to whether some of the, the horrible things he says are things he would have done or stooped to, or did he just say them for rhetorical reasons? But I'm certainly a Machiavelli scholar. I've written a lot about him. I've published on him. I wrote what would have been my dissertation had I finished my PhD on him. Most people don't finish their PhD because they don't write their dissertation. I'm the opposite kind of idiot. I actually wrote a master's thesis that was long enough to be a dissertation, but I didn't finish certain of my courses, and so I never got my degree. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I and, and he just informs my thinking. I mean, I never, certain writers sort of get into your head and, and never leave, and he's, he has so much to say and is so comprehensive that I almost never come across some phenomena or thing that's important that I don't immediately realize, wait, Nick had something to say about this. Let's figure out what he said and then, you know, see what we can learn from that. Absolutely. Like, uh, I guess the the thing there is like, uh, did he unleash this? You know, like, uh, because people at like, uh, you know, Dirty Politics was like, uh, you know, birthed by Machiavelli with with his pen, which uh, is not the case. I mean, the way I think of it is like, you know, even you know, you know, guys like Dave Ramsey or that talks about personal finance. Uh, even if it, like everything he said was wrong, well, like uh, who else is talking about that? It's kind of like Machiavelli. There's not too many people that talk about those kinds of things. Like, uh, well, I, I follow a scholar who's very famous in the scholarly world and not super well known outside the scholarly world, named Leo Strauss, who I never met. <laughs> he died when I was three. But I learned from many of people that he taught directly, including Harry Jaffa, who knew Strauss for, for years, and Harvey Mansfield, who's really still the world's leading living Machiavelli expert and will be until he dies. I mean, he's just brilliant on this. 
And, th- and their view is the following. Of course, Machiavelli did not invent dirty politics. Dirty politics was known throughout the, the ages. You can go back and read Plato and Aristotle and, and, and other ancient writers, and they describe dirty politics. I mean, Thucydides, in his account of the Pel- Peloponnesian War, describes dirty politics. One of the dirtiest things ever done in politics is the so-called, you read Book 5 of Thucydides, he describes the famous Melian dialogue mm-hmm. where these ambassadors from Athens go to the island of Milos and they basically say, you're coming into our empire whether you like it or not. So you might as well just accept it and submit and start paying us tribute and be our ally or we'll kill every man, woman and child on the island. And the Melians say, why would we do that? You know, that, that, you, that's unjust. Anyway, it goes back and forth. In the end, they don't submit and they all get killed or the women and children sold into slavery. So dirty politics pre-exists Machiavelli. What's unique about Machiavelli Strauss says is that he's the first person to to teach openly that kind of doctrine and to advise princes to act this way. It's one thing to describe it and say, well, this kind of stuff happens. It's another thing to say, if you want to get by in the world as a political leader and as a prince, you have to behave this way. And he specifically says that in a lot of places, but famously in chapter 15 of The Prince, he says, listen, if you want to succeed as a good man in a world where you're surrounded by men who are not good, you're just going to get killed. So to get by, to make your way, and to actually succeed and thrive, you have to learn not to be good, and you have to be willing not to be good. Okay? That's level one. Another level, which Strauss is the one who really brings out the most clearly, so you talked about Machiavelli being the beginning of something. Strauss argues in, a, in what I think is his, his greatest book. It's certainly his longest and, and, and most challenging book, I think. Thoughts on Machiavelli from uh, 58, 1958. He says that Machiavelli is really the founder of, of modernity, that there's a fundamental break with all, with all previous thought within Machiavelli's work. So that despite, what, despite the many and significant and serious differences between, say, the ancient philosophers themselves, among themselves, or between all of the ancients as a body and all of the medievals as a body, there's still an underlying continuity that is, isn't uh, formally, finally shattered until Machiavelli breaks it and founds modern philosophy, which leads to modern political practice. And we can trace so many of the things that we live with today back to that act of founding. So in that sense, according to the what I call the orthodox Straussian interpretation, I can explain why I add the qualifier, but I won't right now. According to that interpretation, he really is the beginning of something, and he really is the founder of the world that we live in. The, uh, that, I mean, that's a, I, I, I couldn't agree with that, but uh, but uh, <laughs> of course, uh, like you said, there's I'm sure that there's this is kind of like a Sunni or Shia thing, whether well, you're Mach- orthodox. Machiavelli or you're the, uh, is a figure I've heard from different, I read in different books from scholars that uh, everything he said was satire, or it was completely serious, or he was a he was a reform, he wasn't a religious reformer, or he was a sec, he was secular, he was an atheist. Like there's like a, a billion yeah. different interpretations of what yeah. he did, which is how you know that he was good at uh, his. Like social philosophy. Well, it's not even clear. That's why I added the qualifier orthodox Straussianism, because it's not even clear that to the extent to which Strauss believed that. Now, that's what the surface of that book argues, okay? And he says it in other places, too. But Strauss is, is a careful, complicated writer, and you delve the depths of his books, and you realize that nothing is really as it necessarily seems on the surface, and his judgment may be different. I think he's unquestionably—on the first half of what I said, though, I don't have any doubt about. That is to say, Machiavelli didn't invent dirty politics. He, he, didn't, he wasn't even the first to describe it. He's just the first to advise you to, to, as a normative judgment. So you talked about the many interpretations of Machiavelli. Most of them are given by scholars who, like him, 
to excuse him or to paper over some of the outrageous things he says. So one such interpretation is, look, he's just an analyst. He's a scientist. He's the beginning of the scientific <laughs> study of politics, right? He's just telling you what happens. He's not passing judgment. Except if you read his books, he's, he passes judgment all the time. He says this is good and this is bad. More importantly, he gives advice. He tells you what to do and what not to do. Um, this just shows you how how geeky I can get. But when I was in grad school, I had this bright idea. I was going to underline, and I still I did it, and I still have the copy. I underlined every sentence of the prints in four different colors. To you know, like this is sort of throat clearing or set up. This is uh, a general statement of analytical principle. This is an example because he gives tons of historical examples, and this is normative advice or commandment. Like you will do this, and you will not do that, and. And I did it. I, I underlined the whole book this way. And there's, I, I used red for the normative commandments. There's a lot of normative statements in the prints and in the discourses. So he's not just a dispassionate analyst. He's telling you what to do and what not to do. Yeah. You, descri- you described the book as like a CV, right? He was, it, was like a, it was his job application. He wanted to... Well, he calls it that at the beginning. But again, that's one of those things you have to take with a grain of salt, <laughs> right? He says, he has, a, he has a dedicatory letter to a sitting prince who was uh, a member of the Medici family, who'd basically been given his, his role as the Duke of Urbino. So the Medici take over Florence and all of its imperial possessions, and they've got people that they need to install in various places. And they stick this young Lorenzo, who has the same name as the most famous Lorenzo the Magnificent, who died in uh, 1492 and uh, ushered in a, a very turbulent period in Florentine history, but you know, whatever. Machiavelli writes him this letter, says, I, I, I was fired by your family. So before the Medici returned to power, Florence was a republic and Machiavelli was a senior you know, official in the Florentine Republic. Not top, like, not like secretary of state, but, but one tier down from that, but he, in terms of his official rank. But he was so much smarter and more able than everyone that all of the senior people who had their jobs essentially because they had they were just a more noble birth you know they were they were more aristocratic not that he was a peasant he was a sort of minor gentry but he was so talented that they all deferred to him and let him do all the work or most of the work well when the medici came in they they, they get rid of the republic obviously or the republic falls and they get rid of all the people working there and they fired him and they even tortured him uh, because they thought he might be involved in a conspiracy and sentenced him to a kind of house arrest, exile. So this is just an aside. I was there two years ago for the second time. Um, he has this little house in um, uh, San Andrea in Percusino, which is just about 10 miles from Florence. And he was not, for, he was not allowed to enter the city for quite a while. And he, there's the, he has this, I don't know what you call it. It's like a garden. It's, like, it's almost like a deck, except obviously it's not a deck, but it's up high. And there's a little wall. And from that wall, and if, you, if you know Florence at all, the big, tall dome of the Duomo that it's the first freestanding dome built in the Western world since the Pantheon in ancient Rome because human beings forgot how to build domes. This is, this is why they call it the Dark Ages, whether that is entirely deserved or not. A lot of knowledge and know-how is forgotten. And nobody knew how to build a dome anymore until Brunischkelli had to figure it out from scratch and they built the dome. Anyway, poor Nick could see the Duomo and the Towers of Florence from this little balcony, not balcony, but like outdoor, but he wasn't permitted to enter the city. So he writes this book. And he writes a dedicatory letter, which is tongue-in-cheek. But on the surface, it says, Dear Lorenzo, give me a job. But there's something very cheeky about the letter because it's presumptuous. It says, I, you need me because I know how to rule. I spent 
all my life reading ancient histories. I know everything about politics, having learned from the histories. And then I spent 14 years as a senior official in the government playing active politics. I'm really good at this, and I have knowledge. And the implicit argument there is, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you're not good at it, and you don't have knowledge, because you were, you were stuck there by your uncle, the Pope, and you don't really know what you're doing, and you need a savvy, kind of ruthless, knowledgeable person like me. So it's, it's, very, it's, it's like writing a letter to a CEO asking for a job saying, you know, you need me because I know how to run your company. And it's a chance that the guy's going to read that letter, if he even reads it, and just say, who does this guy think he is, and crumple it up and throw it in the, in the waste paper basket. Well, we don't know if Lorenzo Jr. or whatever, Lorenzo the Lesser, ever read The Prince. There's one anecdote which suggests he didn't, but what, we do know that Machiavelli never got another job after he got fired. So he was a, <laughs> he was a writer uh, for the rest of his life, and he had a lot of rich friends in Florence. He was sort of like a Florentine Socrates, except not quite as poor, because he had some inherited land and money. But his rich friends basically took care of him for the rest of his life. Yeah, this this, uh, this thing about uh, not enough jobs to go around for really ambitious guys is also one of these things that um, uh, comes around a lot. And it's, uh, I think he, you know, we're we're working on a piece about Boss Tweed right now, and uh, which sounds like a very low low comparison. Uh, I don't I don't think it is, but but uh, sorry to stay on topic. Fascinating um, character though. I mean, I'll just just as an aside, I'll recommend if you haven't seen it, you guys probably have. But if you haven't, you got to pick up a little short book called Plunkett of Tammany Hall. Yeah, okay. I have. Yeah, it's right. it's um uh, the yeah the the writing style uh, threw me off, but yeah, no, it's Brooklynese from like eighteen ninety. I got you, but it, <laughs> it's it's a good accurate. Um, so I worked for Giuliani when he was the mayor of New York for a couple of years at City Hall. Right behind City Hall, there's this gigantic building called the Tweed Courthouse, which was built by Boss Tweed. And it's one of the most beautiful public buildings in America. Um, you know, spare no expense, except it was like, I don't know, four or five times over budget uh, all and, and, and off schedule. All of that be, uh, because of the graft that went into it. It well, was just like... You know, if this pillar costs a hundred dollars, we're going to charge five hundred, and four hundred is going to go out to all my buddies. <laughs> well, okay, let, let's enter here. I was going to continue about the, the, that, but let, let's, let's, let's talk about this because, okay, uh, you want to talk about things like Caesarism and stuff? Because Boss Tweed is the most maligned. You know, uh, when mm -hmm. you're in the fifth grade, you you get you learn like two things about politics, uh, and uh, one of them is that Boss Tweed is like the origin of evil, and then we sign all these civil service acts, and we. Excise this this uh, demonic spirit from the American political system, and uh, the, the, and this also goes into all this stuff about uh, about. Um, oh, oh, I guess to finish up on, on Machiavelli, I guess the, the real question there uh, is is kind of you know is is aggregate human behavior the same as uh, uh, the same as as individual human behavior? And uh, I, you know the Bible. I think um, it's not actually in the Bible. I don't think, but uh, uh, you know. <laughs> Colloquially, there's this uh, statement, um, uh, "But God loved David most of all." Yeah, and David was was I don't know if he would say a Machiavellian, but uh, well, yeah, he did some he did some shady things. <laughs> yeah, or like you know, in terms of aggregate behavior, it's good to love your wife. It's perhaps not good to uh, you know, in aggregate, love thousands of women, which. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, you know, if you're like uh, you know in a rock band, or you're or you're King David, that's the thing that you're doing. Uh, 
but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, there's something about. Well, anyways, let's let's go let's go to let, let's go to Boss Tweed. So Boss Tweed, uh, by the way, so he you know he's a guy. He's up and coming. He's uh, uh, he, uh, he's a big guy. He's very intelligent. You know, there's uh, you're in this this period where the industrial revolution is sort of taken off. He go like uh, he's a Protestant, so he he goes in a plot like uh, th- these sort of organizations that that politics were done through like um the masons or the know nothings and stuff he showed up at their door and they didn't have anything for him because he thought like oh well i'm just a Protestant. that's all you need to be no you need to be in one of these these wasps families and stuff and so they told him to get lost so he went he went to, to for over to the, the catholic or or sick but anyways the 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 end, the end result there is so you look at the like the rule of Boss Tweed, which by which he uh, for a short time he had New York completely ruled by him. He chartered the city to himself, basically. It's just like an incredible amount of power for one person. But like, uh, what did you get out of that? So things like the goal, like all, everything that people go to New York City, like tourists and stuff today. Hey, you, you know, there's you're gonna go to the Golden Gate Bridge. You're gonna see MoMA. All these things, like all these well, things. Well, Golden Gate Bridge, Bridge is in San Francisco, but yeah, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've, I've never been. I've, I've never crossed the Mason Dixon line, so you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> Uh, all, all, all I, these- by the way, let me just say I really do appreciate you having on um, a blue coastal, uh, whatever uh, pejorative you want to uh, um, insert there. Uh, it's nice of you. <laughs> uh, he's building all these things, um, but he's taking some money, right? So he's taking some money. Yeah. Now, if you once he's gone, like everything is fixed, everything is happy, and instead of your tax money going to this. This uh, this big dude who's uh, who, by the way, you know, he's out there walking this like when, when the city is riding over the over the the Civil War draft. He's the only person with any sort of uh, elected like uh, any sort of office that's that can walk the streets because uh, he's actually like he, he this is actually a place that 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 he that he rules. But uh, the aggregate. What you get is you just send your money to a tax office, and it goes to a bunch of bureaucrats. And for some reason, they're not building any more bridges. They're not building any more things. You're just paying off like an oligarchy instead of one guy. And the end result for a, a citizen, okay, Boss Tweed is somehow bad in a way that it benefits the people more than than just an oligarchy of people that I don't know. They they're they smile and uh, you, you don't. I know what you're saying. I mean, if I were to defend him, I would say, you know, he he spread the money around. Um, he had a he had a wide patronage network, and he used it, you know, in support of what he, if, you know, if, if we're giving him if we're giving his activities the best possible interpretation, he used it in support of uh, you know downtrodden communities, poor communities, working class. He you know this was a. Um, you know, a sort of anti-upper class movement. You can't argue, though, that it that ultimately it wasn't corrupt, and all of these things didn't cost more than they needed to cost. Had you if you'd had efficient, you know, responsive, rational, honest government in New York, I still, yeah. If your if your question to me is like, would you rather have that? You know, remember what Plunkett? What does Plunkett say? Is like he makes a distinction. The whole the whole core of that book, Plunkett of Tammany Hall, is the distinction between honest graft <laughs> and dishonest graft, right? He defends honest graft. Well, yeah. would I prefer honest graft to some of the horrible things that are going on today? Yeah, I think I, I, I think I would. 
Yeah, I mean, look at the, the, the situation that a U.S. lawmaker is in. So, you know, we have these bizarre situations where uh, a U.S. lawmaker can be in charge of untold billions of dollars, like making decisions that, uh, like, you know, if you if you can make decisions about what a S-22 does, but you make, but, you know, you have $3,500 in your bank account, that, that gets weird. Like, uh, I, I would... I don't know. I guess there's no way to do this, but uh, I would want whoever rules the United States of America to um, uh, um, <laughs> get some money off that. I don't. I guess. Well, I mean, part of the the regime that we have today is cleverly constructed to steer money into the pockets of people who I would argue don't deserve it and haven't earned it. But it's all legal, and it all has a. Uh, an imprimatur of legitimacy, right? Whereas what Tweed was doing, it's much easier to condemn him because he it was obvious it was obvious graft. I mean, it was obvious skimming and and all the kinds of things that you know are clear violations of the letter of the law. But the sort of stuff that goes on today, it's also kind of fuzzed out and gray area that it's easy to just o- overlook it. Or even if we all know, I mean, let's just take for example Hunter Biden. Okay. Yes. This is exactly what I was thinking. The laptop. All right. Right. Oh, remember the laptop was fake. The laptop was a Russian influence operation. Now everybody is like, well, okay, the laptop might have been real, but you know, who cares? It doesn't matter. I mean, it's pretty obvious what was going on there. Um, The influence peddling um, gets put on the board of a company he doesn't know anything about in a country he doesn't know anything about, whose language he can't speak in an industry he doesn't know anything about, and has paid all this money. That's just pure. uh, access buying goes on all around the world today among the elites. But as long as you do your careful, you know, FARA registrations and other things, it's, you, and you stay on one millimeter on the side of the law, and importantly, you're a member in good standing of the ruling class, they won't come after you for it, right? I mean, try, try being a supporter of Donald Trump and doing something like that. Yeah, you know, you'll end up like Manafort or whatever. That was so depressing because, like, uh, 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 okay, uh, that's that's what I'm talking about with like getting money. Because I, I guess this all happened because, well, what you're supposed to do if you run if you're going to be a big time politician in America, you write a couple books and people will just buy the book, and this is how you get money. Biden never did that, and so you get the situation where. We're doing things like militarily to like, uh, you know, get his deadbeat son like two hundred, like a job, yes. or like two hundred grand. That's but- that's the problem with with this form of graft, which is that it, it's kind of like, okay, if you were the Roman emperor, you could say, hey, you need to give me a thousand talents of gold, and I'll, uh, you know, help you out militarily, and that that would be the end of it. You they get the money. This is like, oh no, we're gonna we're gonna reroute the entire like the entire trade network, you know, th- through through this one port, and in exchange, I'm gonna get a little money. They're they're bought off for for so little money while spending so much of the public coffer that it's like it would be it would be much cheaper and simpler for us to just say, okay, Joe Biden, here, take one million dollars from the <laughs> treasury, and, and we would we would all literally all be better off if that if it worked that way. Yeah, I'm not sure that I, I could argue with that, although, except to the extent that I would say Joe Biden is not going to settle for $1 million. Um, <laughs> you're going to need, you know, I mean, look, be, the, the quickest way to become, not maybe the quickest, but one of the quickest ways to become rich is to somehow get elected president, right? I mean, look at Obama. I mean, Obama had, oh, yeah. had he was a kind of a, a half nobody. He made a little bit of money off of one book. Um, he catapults to the Senate in 2004. 
And I'm sure he's worth 100 or 200 million dollars. Hillary now, Hillary Clinton famously said that they were quote unquote dead broke when she and Bill left the White House <laughs> in 2001. We were dead broke. Remember this? And I mean, I'm sure they're worth several hundred million dollars now. Um, it, you know, and it's not just for the presidency. I mean, high office is a way to to get rich, and, or or even kind of medium office. You know, you just get relatively decent position somewhere in the Senate or in the Congress. Uh, committee chairs, leaderships, ranking positions, and people will pay you for your connections uh, and pay you handsomely for your connections for the rest of your life. I mean, I think about a guy like um, you know, Eric Cantor. You guys remember Eric Cantor? Eric Cantor was a congressman yeah. from somewhere in Virginia. Just, like just not, next door to me, yeah. Not the, you know, not like the, the real southern part of Virginia, but outside of the D.C., um, direct D.C. orbit. And he lost a primary in if I were, I think it was 2014, lost a primary, gets replaced. Um, what happens to him? He's immediately on Wall Street making a couple million. You know, it's like three, three and a half million dollars a year. Now, <laughs> does he have any banking experience? To the best of my knowledge, I'm, you know, if I'm wrong about this, somebody can jump on me later. I don't think he does. I don't think he was a banker. He's getting hired the same way all these guys get hired. He's getting hired for his connections. Somebody like David Petraeus. I know David Petraeus doesn't have any banking or finance. Um, Experience. He may be a very accomplished man. We can leave aside the extramarital affairs and the leaking of classified information and his disgraced firing from the CIA and all, all the rest of it. Also, his comments uh, about you know the greatest danger to America being um, you know a disaffected heartland Americans. In other words, exactly the same people <laughs> who died fighting the wars that David Petraeus uh, led them in. But we leave all that aside. David Petraeus now makes zillions of dollars a year working for KKR, though America's. I'm arguably number one or two private equity firm. What do private equity firms do? They buy up businesses to so-called um, make them more efficient, and they just you know fire a bunch of people. <laughs> and you know, in, in the name of streamlining, I, I would urge you guys to read. If anybody, I'm going to give a plug to a friend here, Charles Haywood of the Worthy House, who is himself an accomplished financier and businessman, knows a lot about private equity. Wrote a fabulous article at the Worthy House about private equity. Uh, it was a review of a book called Glass Houses. I, I, I could not stop reading that until I finished it. So I just commend that to your, to your listeners to go take a look at it. But yeah, this, this happens all, all the time. You, you rise through, and, and by the way, I said presidents and senators and congressmen. doesn't even have to be that. You can be a, a senior bureaucrat. You can be someone who gets an appointed position, you know, an assistant secretary or an undersecretary in administration. And these are not badly compensated positions, um, that, that, you know, this is another real difference between red and blue America. In, in red America, if you tell somebody, I, I, you know, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm a bit out of touch, but if you tell somebody, hey, congratulations, you just got a job with a lot of responsibility and you're going to be making like $162,000, they go, that sounds pretty good. Uh, in Washington, if you go, hey, you're going to be an assistant secretary or an undersecretary and you're going to be making that, they go, oh, well, I'll grind it out for a couple of years at this uh, pittance salary, but I'll know I'm going to cash in on the back end. And they do. Uh, so th this reminds me, you, you lay out a line that, that I'd never heard anybody say, but once you hear it, it, it makes perfect sense. You, you were talking about the, like the current regime and you just says on the side, which, which is a combination of the, you know, the federal government and woke capital. Yeah. And, and uh, if you ask them, like, oh, they would say, oh, of course, that's obvious, that's how it works. But I don't think I don't think people presently think of it that way, which is which is why you run into 
a lot of difficulties for people trying to imagine how we would get out of the current predicament, right? Like, because in tradi- like the traditional line of thinking was, well, the, you know, the government is set against pr- you know, the private business, and, like they have, they have competing interests. But that's not true anymore. Like the, these two people, these, well, I guess, or maybe it was never not true, but certainly they don't have any problem working with group, uh, groups and government officials we would, we would call uh, extremely liberal or, or very progressive or far left or however you want to state it. Do, do you have any, like, where would you even begin to, to like, separate these two, separate this power base and, uh, you know. You mean in terms of a practical plan? Yeah, that's the one thing I'm bad at. I got no practical <laughs> plans. I'm a, I'm a political scientist by training. I'm, a, I'm an okay analyst of these things. Actually, I'll, I'll give myself a little credit. I think I'm an above average analyst of these things. I don't know what to do. In fact, I remember, I'm, I'm going to give this guy... If, uh, if he's listening, you know, an undeserved pat on the back. But somebody tweeted about me. He's like, I don't know why anybody reads or listens to Anton. It's clear he doesn't know what to do. To which I thought, well, of course I don't know what to do. Like, but Nobody if that, does. If that's the standard, right? Like, are you, are, you, are you waiting for me or anyone to come up with the, you know, uh, the, oh, wait, here, I got the 10-point plan and we're going to get everything back together. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have that. I, and I think about it all the time. I mean, my, my friends and I, you know, who are my, my closest friends are mostly like me. They're, they're trained political scientists. They're people I went to grad school with or who went to similar schools and got similar educational backgrounds. And we say to ourselves, you know, I, I don't see an an, a historical analog for this regime that we live in, right? I mean, we've read Plato, we've read Aristotle, we've read Cicero. They describe the regimes. We've read all the moderns, right? What is this? What is America 2022? You, you can't find it in the history books, and you can't find it in the musings of somebody trying to describe a regime. But yeah, your, your point that it is, um, and, and I'm still trying to do that. I tried to do it in my book, which I'm now going to plug, The Stakes, which came out in September of 2020. It's out in paperback now. Uh, I tried to describe the regime in chapter three of that book, and I don't consider that the definitive account because we're still thinking it through. But certainly one key hallmark of it is this kind of lockstep unity of corporate power and financial power and tech power uh, with the government, and, but a specific part of the government, which is the administrative state or the permanent elites. And, and not just the permanent elites, but that class, you know, there's a phrase in Washington it's called the revolving door, right? Mm-hmm. Which means like you go into an administration, you do four years at your, at your pathetically low salary, but then you get out and you get make three, four million dollars a year for the next five, 10 years, whatever. And then another administration comes in and you get, you know, another administration job. You do that. That's the revolving door. So you're in government, you're out of government. When you're out of government, you're making a lot of money. When you're in government, you're making less, but you're so rich that, hey, you can afford the pay cut for a while. Um, Those people involved in the revolving door, they're not permanent senior bureaucrats, but they're also part of the regime, right? The law partner who then becomes associate attorney general, who then becomes a law partner, who then becomes deputy attorney general. Like, he's part of it. So I'm still trying to figure out exactly what this regime is and how it works. Um, and it, it, Because it has no historical precedent, you know, we got to think completely anew. So it's a little bit difficult. But um, that nexus, like conservatives in general, and a lot of very good people, a lot of people you and I know, not, I'm not, you know, not that we both know or have mutuals, but like, <laughs> you know, just regular people who, who don't do podcasts and don't read this stuff, but have sound political opinions. 
they're a bit stuck in the past and they remember the Reagan era and they remember it was the private sector versus government. It was the dynamic private sector that was being held down by regulation and high taxes that if you could only get the government off its neck would create jobs, fuel innovation, create wealth and drive the country forward. And that was Ronald Reagan's rhetoric 40 years ago, 40, well, I mean, even longer than that. Ronald Reagan was saying that in the 60s. That's how he won the 1980 election. And there's so much, there's so many good people that are still caught up in that for, for good reasons, but um, that is to say excusable reasons, right? But that, that vision, that diagnosis of the problem is totally out of date. And, and the private sector is not on their side anymore. The private sector is yeah. completely hand in glove with the administrative state and with the ruling class. And they, they work together. That's why they're, they're together part of a kind of hybrid regime. Yeah, I mean, Bill Crystal, David Brooks, all those people, they, they, love, they love Biden. You know, uh, there, there's, not, there's not an inch of space between those people now. So in terms of business, though, you know, like uh, the only the only people that still work on the old. So the old model was that you could just offer these people to pay less taxes. I mean, uh, which may, may, it makes a lot of sense because, I mean, uh, taxes are high. And like uh, so that still works in all these low margin industries. So like, uh, you know, the oil industry or whatever, uh, the margins are so low. I mean, you know, margins are so low in, in the um they just uh, they just need drilling rights and stuff. They, they, there's nothing. There's no kind of globalism that really helps them so much. But outside of that, I mean, I remember the big the big the the one for me that, that sort of hit was when Amazon was like they wanted to move their their headquarters to Washington D.C. Yeah, that would have never happened. I mean, could you imagine? You know, the 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 uh, uh, the war zone uh, D.C. of before or the Cowtown <laughs> D.C. of before? Like, we want to be closer to, to D.C. And uh, that was just um, you know you could see uh, something has changed. Well, they are, and they're not moving their headquarters, but they are going to put some gigantic new facilities into Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you remember this story too. I mean, we're, this is kind of a tangent, but it's funny. They were looking also at New York and they were going to put some of it in, I think, in Queens. And it was Alexandria or what, mm-hmm. uh, Ocasio-Cortez, mm-hmm. Alexandra, I forgot. I, I like the way Tucker Carlson just refers to her as, you know. Her, her, her name was Sandy Ocasio <laughs> or you know, just like, oh, and then she, but uh, she objected um, yeah. for sort of old school progressive reasons uh, and the regime got mad at her. But the, so, so the regime has a problem with regard to her, right? On the one hand, she's a great um, firebrand, you know, tip of the spear, lead the foot soldiers type of person. On the other hand, she occasionally gets in the way of, of corporate interests and they don't, and she's not that manageable, but I remember that. Cause it's like, uh, even if I was going to do that, I would like pretend to like, um, I tried to make this happen. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, you're, that that was that was uh, very bizarre. If you want to understand why someone like AOC is a problem for them, imagine like a CIA agent in 1970, and they send him to Latin America, and he's a true believer in like democracy, like he, he Jeffersonian, and he's you know he says I'm here and I want to make sure that you know that that we convert the convert this place to like you know Republican democracy, and obviously his superiors are going to hate that because that's not you know that's not actually why you're here. You're 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 using the play, but you're you're not reading the playbook correctly i would say the jury is out on that so uh so she was working for like soros before she even like went anywhere 
And uh, there's other reasons to to uh, oppose that. It's, th- this is kind of part. So look, look, this is kind of uh, there's a complicated dance that goes along with it. So like I don't know. If you, so you know the, this fellow. Um, f- uh, who's the Facebook guy? Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg. So Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, he spent uh, a great deal of money trying to. Um, well, uh, yeah. The, the, he bought a lot. He bought a lot of, of paper uh, in in uh, 2020, right? Uh, hey, look! You don't have to dance around it. The regime <laughs> brags about it. Do you guys remember well, yeah, the, the, this the, is the, all the, for the that famous article. Time magazine article by Molly Ball, if I recall correctly, saying you know how uh, an alliance of big tech and and high finance and progressive activists saved our democracy. By saved our democracy, what she meant is guaranteed a Biden victory by changing all the rules in advance. Yeah. Okay. So you know. Uh, okay. Uh, so a guy takes. By, a- by the way, we were looking over your <laughs> your, your resume, uh, and it and you were accused publicly of uh, was it doing a conspiracy theory about how George Soros and NGOs well, were no, going, to, so going here, to steal uh, the uh, 2020 election. Let me just to say this because this is I I, I want to clear this up. I was on uh, Bongino's radio show today, and he brought this up because he loves it. So in the summer of 2020, a bunch of leftists got together and they hatched this thing called the Transition Integrity Project. And that point was like, well, you know, it, Trump, Trump might say that he won even if he lost. Now they all claim to have been vindicated. But, you know, we got we to gotta find a way to uh, make sure we get him out of there. And they had mili- they had military officers talking about you know h- how do we how do we drag him out of the White Biden himself used the phrase we're going to drag him out of the White House. Hillary Clinton said he shouldn't concede under any circumstances. That is to say, Biden. And they were they were talking about coups. <laughs> yeah. And so I just wrote an article. It was like, hey, look at all these quotes these people said. Look at what they're saying. I mean, this is this is crazy. They're they're basically saying we can't let Trump win, and if, it, if necessary, we'll mount a coup. And all I did was quote them. And the left completely lost their mind. Uh, like, you know, how dare you say this? Anton's pretty good. And I, you know, and it led me to another a, a coinage. Well, actually, I had already coined it, but I'm trying to kind of popularize it. The, I call it the celebration parallax. Yes. And it's, th- this is a thing that I've been noticing for a while. I, ca- I came up with this name. I, I get, it's not a great name because it's kind of complicated, but I, I, you know, I thought about it for a while and this was the best that I could do. And it's a, it's caught on a little bit. Wait, you came up with that term? Yeah. And so it's, it's a great term. So yeah. this is, this is there, this is when the, when the, the same fact pattern, identical fact pattern is either true or false, depending on who states it. If a leftist says we're going to bring a hundred million people into American politics, into, into America, we're going to import 100 million, 200 million immigrants. They're going to change politics forever and, and, and make the country left wing and replace all of these bad guys. That's cool. If I say, wait a minute, you're going to bring 100, 200 million people into America and replace people and change American politics forever. I don't even have to say I'm, I'm not for it. I just have to say, wait a minute, I noticed this. Then I am. It's a conspiracy theory. Right. The same fact pattern is either true and scurrilous or sorry, true and glorious or false and scurrilous, depending on who states it. And that was the same thing with the coup. They want to be they want to be able to go out there and openly say, don't worry, we're not going to let Trump be president. No matter what happens, we'll take care of it. But then I quote their own words back to them and they shriek. They shriek in my face and call me all kinds of names. And Bongino did the same thing. You know, he read my piece. He read a bunch of other pieces. And he really he really hit this hard on the radio in 2020. And the New York Times wrote a whole hit piece about him. And he's still, to this day, he's laughing about it. He's like, I, I can't believe these people. Um, 
Yeah, you know? if, if you read back uh, what Michelle Goldberg writes about uh, yeah. demographic uh, election strategies, uh, that makes you a uh, a Klansman. Yeah, she could write for V Dare. No, she's the one who wrote the famous. I quote this all the time because it's very useful. She, her, she had a column in the New York Times. The literal title was "We Can Replace Them." So if I quote that, going, "Hey, look, all of you who say there is no great replacement, we can replace them." Never repudiated. Never, never walked it back. Still out there. But I'm the conspiracy theorist for quoting their own words. It's like somebody comes up to you and says, "Hey, dudes, I'm going to steal all your money." And you go, wait a minute, you're going to steal all my money? And then they just jab their finger in your chest and say, how dare you accuse me of saying I'm going to steal all your money? You go, wait, what What world am I living in? Go back to this guy. Okay, so the, the Facebook guy. Uh, so he's find, found himself in 2020. So what? he, yeah. he, bought, all the, he bought all these ballots. He, he sent all these people down there to do all this stuff. Uh, he's... He, this is a, a well. Uh, this is a, a self-made, very wealthy man who uh, spends all this money because he really, really loves the Democratic Party and he really wants to see uh, uh, them win an election. And uh, so, right afterwards, they 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 start they start attacking him and stuff. Right? They they haul they hauled his ass in front of Congress and and, uh, uh, and humiliate him. And uh, the. This, like that's already kind of weird. I, I mean, that's already super weird, right? I, I would, you know, uh, I would feel a certain kind of. I feel. I think I would feel a certain kind of way about that if, if I was him. But uh, now, you know, it, even further. So he runs this. You know, he runs. I, I'm curious what you think about 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 that. And one other thing is that he runs this thing. This this Facebook thing, and yeah. they like it. Democrats basically blame. That website, because uh, boomer conservatives like to uh, uh, talk. That, that's where they organize and stuff. They're like the top 10 posts every day. Like nine out of 10 of them are Ben Shapiro talking about <laughs> the left has gone wild. And um, uh, he runs that website. And it wouldn't be like, uh, so, you know, uh, there's all kind of... I mean, maybe he's not pleased that, that he armed the plebs. He he gave them tools that were not meant to be to be in their hands. That were meant for his his cast and no one else. And and they're going to punish him for that for pretty much forever until he takes them takes them back away. It, I mean, it, look, he's I, in a he's in a weird situation because I don't think he likes to be running the most powerful uh, conservative news website, but he kind of is. And uh, there's that, and there's also the thing of them of them like being uh, they they kind of blamed him for losing the election, even though he spent all these millions. This is just another one of these these nuances. Like what is? Well, they this blamed regime? him for 2016, right? I mean, yes. Look, so I'm not on Facebook or on any social media, so I'm pretty much an ignoramus about these things. But I I'm to, I read about them and people send me links. I look at them. I never look at Facebook because Facebook, you know, you got to be, you got to have an account and be logged in. Um, whereas if somebody sends me a Twitter link, I can at least look at. So I have some vague idea of what's going on there. My sense of Zuckerberg is that, you know, he's in the midst of a conflict between either a genuine belief in free speech, if we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, or if we're not going to give him the benefit of the doubt at least the understanding that he needs to look like he believes in free speech. And on, that's on the one hand. On the other hand is his genuine desire to see that his side wins every time and that since he's a powerful man and has a powerful, influential platform, he uses that platform only to help his side. And he knows that he has lots of, of fans and supporters 
uh, or just people on his side who aren't necessarily his fans and supporters, but think that he has an absolute duty to use his platform only to push their side of the argument and to suppress the other side of the argument. And he finds it hard to reconcile those two imperatives. And that, you know, and, and look, let's face it too. If, if, if Facebook were to, at least this is my interpretation, if Facebook were to acquire a reputation uh, among the boomers that you're talking about, right? Is, hey, this is not a fair platform anymore. You're being suppressed. You're being censored. Um, we're getting a line pushed on us and our point of view, you know, is getting cut out. They'd go away. And, and when he uses losers and he, sorry, yeah, he loses users and loses eyeballs, he makes less money and the, and the platform becomes less popular. And he's got to worry about that. So in a way, what Zuckerberg, the money that he spent in 2020 was probably cheap for him in the sense of like, he's like, look, I can spend a few hundred million dollars on quote unquote fortifying the election. And that's going to be cheaper than, you know, changing the business model of my platform in a way that could cost me billions of dollars and actually weaken my business over time. That's, that's a good, that's a good explanation. I mean, uh, You've said before you think there's a limit to how much profit that these companies are willing to sacrifice in order to push these these political movements, right? I have so, said that, and I'm now starting to wonder if I'm not just completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we, we would have this debate, uh, you know, around the time of the Trump election, 2016-2015, uh, about, like, you know, well, these these people would say, you, you know, you're, you're crazy to believe that there's such a thing as woke capital because... You know, these are entities that have, you know, by definition, have to get profit for their shareholders. Like, that's all they care about. They're just, you know, pushing this, like, drag queen story hour is something just going to make them more money. That's the only reason they're doing this. And it, it's becoming obvious, it has become obvious that's not true. This is like a, at the very least, a side project. I was going to, I was going to ask you if you still thought that, like, that, that there is that there is a necessary limit. I'm not I'm not sure there is, and my colleague has had a, a long a long-standing theory that essentially the people who the, the middle man, the middle managers of these corporations are true believers in the new religion, and they're going to they're going to you know ch- change the entity to do to I guess work to those ends regardless of what the CEO thinks. Yeah, you you guys, before we started, so it's, it's probably not anything listeners can hear, but I'll mention it. You mentioned, you pat on Curtis Yarvin, and I, I, I'm, he has said this to me in the past, and it sounds plausible and sensible. I take his word for it because he's connected to the tech world in a way that I am not, that a lot of these guys in, in a lot of these corporations, they're not true believers, but they're afraid of junior staff who are. Yes. Right. So if you're the 55 year old CEO of some big company and, you know, you're kind of, you know, you're basically liberal, left of center. You certainly are on the, the coastal cocktail party circuit and you know all of these elites and you want to get along with them. Um, but what the last thing you want is to wake up one morning and the headlines around, you know, all the business papers and even the, the newspapers are, you know, CEO of Global Corp, whatever it is under fire from staff for not supporting latest craze of whatever. And so they feel pressure. They don't, they don't want to be the subject of a media hate storm. 
of a social media hate storm and be forced to resign in disgrace. And so their, their view is just like, well, we got we to give, give these kids what they want. I mean, individually, they're nothing, but all together and with the amount of external pressure they can bring, they're very, very powerful. And these, these people who are supposedly some of, some of, if not the most powerful people in our society, are actually afraid of recent college grads who make, you know, I don't know what the gap in CEO pay to junior staff is today. I mean, it could be in the order of 300 to 1 or something like that. Um, but it's high. And uh, they're actually afraid of them. I yeah. think that that's part of it. If, that, if, if that's not the whole explanation, it's a big, big part of it. But I mean, have you seen uh, uh, Godfather Two when um, Michael Corleone is uh, he's uh, him? He's got all this money. He actually has all these guys uh, working for him that are uh, you know work specialized in violence and things. He should be unassailable. He's purchasing um, you know all these assets in Cuba from Unroth, and he's uh, he's driving down the street, and he sees this he sees this uh, terrorist guy, yeah, bomb a cop, yeah, and you know, he realizes like, um, okay, that that guy is not really getting uh, paid for that, but he's still doing that. Uh, it was a suicide bomb, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like the way, I mean, the way I imagine it is so uh, the best the best example you can see of it is, is like when these people, like you know, some executive guy or some politician guy, gets their Children blow them up on social media. They, you know, <laughs> you know my dad is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, didn't say the 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 who which tribe owned the land before the uh, a speech or something. <laughs> and like, why why do they do that? Like uh, to me, this is like if ima- like there is an imaginary ghost corporation that uh, people that uh, they know that tomorrow it's stock like in 10 years, that stock will be worth more than, uh, you know, whatever, uh, Facebook is or whatever current entity that has this money. Now, uh, it will be more powerful tomorrow than it, than it was yesterday. And so you can, you can sort of rend yourself unto this, this like movement. And, uh, like right now, like right now, any person could, if, if you could, if they can find the, the thing is, this is very competitive and this is why it gets complicated, but, uh, you know, you, you can like, uh, uh, throw away your family and like do some, like confront, uh, cinema in a bathroom or something. And, uh, you know that they'll, they'll protect you. Maybe now you're, now you got a name you, you've, you've like, uh, You've been recruited into something, but it's there's no boss. You know, this is and you know, uh, I guess the difference there in Cuba that was sort of a class movement for poor yeah. people. This is this is a this is a up uh, a bureaucratic class like uh, supremacist movement thing. So you said a lot of things that I think are are, are I want to respond to that, that trigger a lot of thoughts. One is you said there's no boss. That's one of the, when I, I said earlier. You know, I don't know how to analyze or describe this regime yet. I'm, we're still thinking it through. I say we because a lot, a lot of my friends are working on this with me. And, you know, we're all trained political scientists. If you're a political scientist, you should be able to say, yeah, I know what that is. Uh, we can't. Uh, and that, that, who's, you know, there's no boss. Or who's the boss? Who's really giving the orders? We sort of know it's not Joe Biden. Um, and it's not Kamala. Um, but who is it? Is there a, it would be easier to understand if there were a kind of hidden puppet master behind everything. I'll give you an example just to, you know, from sort of trash TV that I've watched on airplanes. I, I, I will admit that I, I, I'm not up to date, but I did watch the show uh, Billions for a few seasons. 
um, you know, which is about a, a Greenwich hedge fund and the New York, the Southern District of New York prosecutor out to get him. And I, I lived in that world for a while, so it seemed interesting. Well, the guy, the prosecutor wants to become governor of New York. And so they arrange a meeting. His father arranges a meeting for him with, I forgot the name of the character, but some ultra um, prominent, wealthy aristocrat somewhere in New York who controls Albany. I mean, first of all, the idea that an old money wasp aristocrat controls Albany was a joke in Boss Tweed's day. It's even more of a joke today, but leave that aside. And all, all this guy has to do is basically go there and say, I want to be the governor, and I kiss his ring, and the guy takes care of it for him. Well, if things were that simple, it would be easy <laughs> to understand the regime. But there is, no, there is no person, right? It's a kind of a hive mind. There's no boss. The, the kid on social media denouncing his or her parents isn't taking orders from anybody. He just or she just knows what the blob, what the hive mind wants to hear and does it to gain approval and acceptance. Yeah. All right. The, uh, second, we, the second point I would make is this is really no different than one of the most horrible phenomena of the 20th century, which was Stalin's and the Communist Party's um, encouragement of children to inform on their parents for infractions. So, you know, yeah. you, you've heard the phrase block captains, I assume, right? Block captain was like your neighbors inform on you. You know, I'm, 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 I'm picking an out-of-date example, which wouldn't have applied in the 1930s, but it's like your neighbor informs the regime that he's not really re- uh, separating his recycling properly. Therefore, he's a bad person, right? They're spying on you when you take out your trash. Well, okay, neighbors is pretty bad, but families, and that's really striking at the heart of the human experience. And Stalin made heroes out of young children who informed on mom and dad for some infraction of party discipline and and just destroyed families. And not just individual families, but the whole basis of family life for generations. It's a horrible thing. And we thought that was behind us, but now social media encourages it. And it's something that I think is just utterly destructive of humanity. It's not merely destructive of the parents. It's destructive of the children too. Whatever dopamine hit a kid gets from doing that will not be outweighed by the massive disadvantages of having hurt her parents for decades later. And I, you know, I think to an example, this is not, these are not people I knew well, but I knew slightly. I knew Kellyanne Conway in the White House. And I don't, I, I don't mean to say, it, I, I have no specific insight into the situation. All I'm saying is my, I'm just expressing my profound sympathy for everyone involved as her family, including at least one child, waged a kind of political war in public on Twitter against one another. This wasn't disagreeing over the Thanksgiving table. You know, it wasn't like, well, you know, I got a right wing uncle over here and a left wing aunt over here and we're going to all disagree and then we're going to hug and kiss and we're going to be so happy that we got together over this holiday and go home. It was waged openly and in public and in in such a way that I don't know how a family gets over that and it's just heartbreaking and tragic. And the idea that we have a, a regime, a culture, tech companies, tech employees, tech CEOs, journalists who fan these flames and encourage it just strikes me as, well, I, I will say despicable and also profoundly sad. Yeah, you know, there's there's this great painting from the 19th century. It's like it's set at the 
in the English Civil War, and they're in the drawing room, and there's like on one side of the table you have like you know classic roundheads, mm. and on the other side of the table there's a little boy standing standing in front of him, and the, and the title and you know they're questioning him in the painting, and the title of the painting is like, and when did you last see your father? So like this is this like as you said this isn't a a, a brand new thing, but uh, the scale of it and and technology has allowed it to like. You know, it, like everything else, is supercharged. This, like, you can you can talk trash about your mother or I guess your children to the entire planet with your phone, like you know, on a whim, any anywhere you know, anywhere you want to be, and without without a second thought. And uh, I think that's probably you could you could blame you can blame tech for a lot of these. I don't. I don't want to sound. I don't want to sound too curmudgeonly, but like a lot of these social ills come directly from these products, these tech companies. And I, as I said before, I think that part of what they can't forgive them for is that there are some people who use them in ways that, like, that are not simply uh, denouncing your parents for not having the correct ideology as given to you by your sociology department. Well, I would, uh, to respect to comrade Stalin for a moment, well, at, least, <laughs> uh, at least, at least he was, I mean, he wasn't a hypocrite. He threw his, his eldest son in a gulag to die, uh, which is, uh, of course that's not good, but you know, the, the, the thing like, uh, what I would say there, and we're not, we're not here to listen to what I have to say, but, uh, to, uh, okay. So, you know, what if, if Stalin, had someone stuck an ice pick in his head and and Lenin and uh you know uh and Trotsky someone else would have been running this thing there was going to be this thing uh called communism and someone's going to be riding the tiger uh it whether who it's gonna you don't know who it's gonna be it's kind of like it's kind of like um uh you know there's going to be a drug like a a, a drug industry in Mexico <laughs> no matter what it's gonna be huge it's gonna make a ton of money and uh it doesn't See, really- I, I don't know if I agree uh, with that with regard to communism. Um, that I, I, I think there was an, a degree to which, you know, getting back to Machiavelli, chance played a role and determination played a role. If, if you can, you know, I mean, you think back to certain events. I mean, w- w- the Germans deliberately sent Lenin back oh, yeah. to Russia. In order yeah. to destabilize, I mean, they knew what they were doing. They wanted to get Russia out of the war. They wanted to foment that revolution. And uh, had that not happened, or had Lenin, you know, languished forever in in Western Europe, or had Lenin, you know, just somehow been, uh, you know, killed by a, a political enemy or something, it's not clear to me this would have happened. And you you have other. I, um, I, I speak a lot. Who's, by the way, a, a guest that I would recommend for you guys. My um, one of my greatest and best teachers, Tom West, and now colleague at Hillsdale College, uh, who really understands and has read a lot of Russia. So I've read Solzhenitsyn, but I haven't read all of the Red Wheel the way Tom has read the Red Wheel, which is Solzhenitsyn's sort of a narrative. In other words, it's not a it's not history. It's 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 presented with characters talking, but history-based account of the revolution, there were opportunities to save Russia that were either um, defeated by um, bad luck or bad choices or something. I'm not convinced that this 
Oh, I, takeover was inevitable. I, oh, I, I totally agree with that. Which uh, you know, uh, uh, by the way, like uh, one of the, I mean, the thing that I always think about is Czar uh, Nicholas. Uh, he he thought alcohol consumption was bad, so he banned uh, vodka. And the state's largest income was on the vodka tax that crashed his economy, so he couldn't pay the military to defend him. Uh, and also, yeah, if his son wasn't a hemophiliac, you know, uh, and the German intelligence hadn't shipped Lennon over in one of those like uh, sealed crates, like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, like the whole thing could have never happened. Yeah, it's right. pretty incredible to imagine that. Also, as you say, Lennon is kind of a, 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 I think, I think people must admit, Lennon is a uh, great man of history in the way that they saw that. They knew that if you send this guy over there, something's going to go down. This is clearly a, uh, you, and not in a way that's completely unique. Like, uh, it's hard to imagine the, the United States Revolution happening the exact same way without George Washington. This, uh, you know, there's these, there's these figures that are a little bit, they got a little bit more uh, juice than uh, others. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, but. Okay, let's see here. Hmm. Almost, almost impossible to. I mean, the the, yeah. the the American Revolution is in a way more inevitable without Washington because it's not. It's much more grassroots, right? There's there's much more groundswell of anger. I mean, I think it's important to remember that uh, the two foci, you know, the two kind of embers of the American Revolution were far apart. They were Virginia and Massachusetts. Different, very different places, very different cultures, different religions, different ethnic background traditions. You know, that, that great book, Albion Seed, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure two guys like you have read it. Um, that cavalier culture in Virginia and that Puritan culture in Massachusetts, They on paper, they don't seem like they have much in common. And yet these are the places that become the seedbeds of the revolution. Because We declared independence first. Yeah, because there's a real groundswell. Um and it, yes, I, I, nobody is a bigger. I mean, actually, I shouldn't say nobody. I know people who are bigger admirers of George Washington than I am. And that's not because I see anything wrong with George Washington. It's just because I know people who know a lot more about George Washington than I do. Uh, it almost. I mean, if you have any doubt about Providence, and then you think about the American Revolution and this groundswell that's building and the anger of the people, and then and then you realize that we were given this man to step in and do what he did. It's hard not to conclude that, you know, if you're Machiavelli, uh, you would say, hey, Fortuna, chance, good luck. If you have any openness to the idea of providence, you have to sort of scratch your chin and wonder if he yeah, was not m- sent by a higher power for that purpose at that time. I, yeah, the man himself said divine, you know, d- divine providence is what, but I think it, it, not, not just stepping in, what made him a really great man was stepping out. Like that, that's really, like, as you said, the revolution was going to happen one way or the other. The, what came from the revolution probably was not set that, I think it's, that's exactly right. I think that's yeah. exactly right. Uh, to, to, to quote the, uh, the man, uh, but fortune who exerts a powerful influence as well in all and in, in other matters, as especially in war, affects great change from trifling causes. Uh, but it, I think the way to solve that one is uh, looking at uh, both Caesar and uh, Luther. Basically, Caesar... Is on a Caesar's doing things that other people have been tried to do before and they lost their head. Luther is doing Martin Luther does things other people have done and they lost their head. Uh, the forces were there, but you, you still, you, uh, uh, great man is, is uh, uh, needed, you know. Yeah, 
I mean, well, okay, Caesar. Now I'm going back to Strauss here. Strauss has a, a a wonderful passage. It's about 12 pages at the beginning of an essay called The Restatement on Xenophon's Hiero, in which he describes Caesarism. I think it's the only place he ever talked about it, but it, 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 it has it all in a way. Um, and his point is that, look, Caesarism is not desirable for its own sake, right? I, I say this as an American who grew up basically patriotic, um, you know, basically right of center, when, even when I was a kid. I grew up in the 80s. I was, a, I was a Reagan fan in high school. I didn't know much about anything. I didn't know about tax rates or deregulation. I just kind of like, Reagan loves America. He's restoring our confidence. He doesn't like the communists, and he's, he, and he loves, and he's good for the military. And so if we get into a, a fight, we're going to win. Now, that, was my, that was my basic 15-year-old take on Ronald Reagan. Uh, and then years later, I go off to grad school, and I, and I meet all of these people, and they say, like, well, you're going to learn what America is. You're going to read every document from the founding, you know, the Constitution, the Declaration. Not that I hadn't read them, but, like, you're going to read them line by line, and we're going to teach you what they really mean. You're going you're gonna to read the, the Federalist Papers. You're going to read their letters. You're going to read the sermons. You're going to read stuff that nobody reads anymore or that only scholars read. And we're going to just get right down to the bottom of this. And we're going to ask ourselves, is what these people were trying to do just and true? And the answer turns out to be, from what I was taught and what I now believe and have believed for years, is yes. It was, it's, all, it's, all, it's all there. Uh, I learned to love it um, on a... On a, on, a, on a very deep level in a way that just sort of fortifies and reinforces your patriotism that uh, I, you know, I, I wish, I wish almost more than anything that it would still um, possible. It's still possible, but it's so much harder to get that kind of education today because of the corruption of the educational system that's gone on. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'll, this is shameless in a way, but I give a plug to, I mean, Hillsdale College, where I teach, is one of the last places in the country that gives you that sort of education. And it's, you know, people say, well, Hillsdale College is just a conservative college. All you're getting is conservative propaganda, you know, which is obviously, of course, I'm going to say this, but I'll say it anyway. Of course, that, that's not true. I mean, we're trying to show you the arguments in the context, and we're showing you the counter arguments, and we're saying, all right, no. Let's see if we can think this through. Let's see if you are convinced by any of this uh, pushback that was either given at the time or that's been given in later scholarship. Uh, it's one of the things that I think we're missing today and one of the things that worries me the most. You know, I, I would much rather have kids go off to school, whether it's elementary or high school or college, and just be given a kind of cursory understanding of the American Revolution, of American political principles. That, you know, it's not that deep. But it's at least accurate, and then you kind of walk away with, yeah, no, that's right, that sounds good. And we're not doing that. I mean, we're, 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 we're telling them, we're lying to them. That is to say, the system is lying to them, and it's lying to them in a destructive way. It's one thing to believe a lie, which is bad, but to believe a destructive lie, a lie that, you know, that's not a noble lie, like Plato's lie in Book Two of the Republic, that's a destructive lie, that's a lie that hurts you, that hurts your soul, um, that seems just to me just about the worst thing you can do with an educational system, and that's what we're doing.
In your article, Unprecedented, you said no country in recorded history has ever welcomed millions with the message that their new country, along with its existing citizens, are inherently evil and out to get them. Which is that that's the primary problem that we're talking about here. You have an education system that teaches people to hate the the not only the founders of the country, but you know their their descendants who still live here. Yeah. And when I read that, I thought, you know, you're right. I can't think of an example of a country ever doing that, but I can think of plenty of examples of empires doing that with like various ethnic groups and playing them against each other to make everybody easier to right. to rule. Do you think that this? Do you th- if there is a playbook? Do you think that's the the objective of, of this to like we're, the, we the empires turning inward and like we're dealing how we're going to manage. The, the population that we control, and the easiest way to do that no, is I mean, to make everybody hate each other. Maybe, but if so, it's a miscalculation, isn't it? Because if I were, if I were running, if let's assume that I were, you know, uh, well, let me put it this way: let's assume that I were what I look like on paper, which is, a, you know, a, a finance person who worked in the White House and is just thoroughly blue and just, you know, has all of their interests and cultural. Tastes, which I kind of do, cultural tastes anyway, but not their interests. Uh, then wouldn't I say, look, if I want to hold the country together, I rule it. I make a lot of money off of it. I'm prestigious within it. I don't want to fracture it. Wouldn't I say, eh, you know, okay, if we're going to have mass immigration, if we're going to have a hundred to 110 million person wave, that's not immigrants, but that's immigrants plus their descendants. So it does amount to significant cultural and demographic change. If we're going to have that, I got to find some glue to keep it all together because I want to keep my empire together, right? Try to imagine, you know, Austria-Hungary in 1875 saying, hey, I have a great idea. Let's pit the German speakers against the Hungarian speakers, against the Serbs, you know, everybody. let's just make everybody hate each other and fight each other. Let's demonize certain groups. and Like, how does that help the emperor? Now, obviously... There are ways in which it helps the emperor today, although, as we said, there is no emperor. There's no boss. There are ways in which it helps the regime, but I'm not sure the ways in which it helps the regime short-term outweigh the ways in which the opposite policy would help the regime long-term, which makes me wonder if they're not being short-sighted out of ideological zeal or, to get back to an earlier point, out of that same kind of fear of the young shock troops that the tech CEOs have. Right. If you're Biden, not that he's particularly sentient, but let's say you're Ron Klain, right? He's maybe the CEO of, of, of the United States government to the extent that there is one. Uh, is he afraid of the revolt of the, you know, the 28 year olds? And so if Ron Klain were to say, Mr. President, I think you ought to give a speech touting national unity, saying critical race theory is a bad idea. And we got to treat people equally. We have to come together to solve great national problems. You need to stop demonizing Trump voters and stuff like that. Klain, on one level, might think, speculating here, he might think, yeah, this would be good, right? I, you know, any president, you're never going to get to 100% approval rating. But it's not impossible for presidents to get to 60% or higher. And that usually, if you're at 60, that usually means that you're golden. And the 40, you know... Of them, only a hardcore of that 40 is usually dead against you. The rest of them are just like, I kind of disapprove because my gas prices are too high. But otherwise, yeah, he's all right. Yeah, I think this is... Uh, but, he, but he won't do that. Now, here, just stick with me one last second. Klein, let's say that thought even occurred to him. He'd go, wait a minute. If I had the president give that speech, the left wing 
furies would be after all of us. And even though they're not that numerous, they maybe represent 10, 15, 20% of the population, but they have, they completely control the megaphone. They're dominant online and in the media. All we would hear is incessant shrieking that were racist sellouts. And he goes, no, no, scrapping it. Can't do it. Now, one, one, one very brief anecdote. Way back in the mists of time, to show you how pervasive this line of thought and this fear is, in the early 1990s, when George H.W. Bush was still president, I read this in a, in a memoir by Andy McCarthy. No, sorry, Andy Ferguson. Apologies, I got my, my Irish Andrews mixed up. So Andrew Ferguson, who uh, is a writer, I think, at Bloomberg now. But anyway, he was a speechwriter in the Bush 41 White House. And the Bush 41 White House was sort of notorious for not caring about the speechwriters, uh, not paying any attention to them, um, whereas Reagan loved his speechwriters and paid a lot of attention to them. Anyway, they, they had a meeting, and they were kind of, you know, they were their agenda was spinning its wheels. They didn't know what they were doing. And so they said, well, let's just get some ideas. And McCarthy, or sorry, Ferguson pitched an idea and says, Mr. President, and this is like 92 or 91, late in the Bush administration, a long, long time ago. So Mr. President, I think you should give a speech denouncing balkanization, which was a term common at the time, which refers to the Balkans, the Balkan Peninsula in, 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 in southeastern Europe, meaning that part of Europe that broke apart after the fall of the, of the USSR, the breakup of Yugoslavia, and you get the wars of Kosovo and Serbia and all of those wars that dominated the 90s. You know, we, we, we don't want to break up into little tribes that are fighting one another. So, you know, give a speech denouncing a warning against balkanization and praising national unity. And he says the president gave him a kind of harsh glare and said, I don't want to give one of those right-wing speeches. <laughs> and the meeting was over. Yeah. And this is how deeply ingrained this thought is, right? We're talking about 30, almost, no, literally 30 years ago this happened. And a Republican president didn't have the stomach to say that even then. So you can't imagine a Democrat saying it now. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> I think this is, I think this is where the Caesarism stuff comes up. And uh, I thought, uh, I don't know if Curtis Jarvin said this exactly, but he said something like, um, uh, imagining a scenario where you just sort of almost assault someone like a Bill Gates and you you force a, a crown on his head. You know, in, in the old days, they would have said, force the diadem upon his head and said, you're now the king of Washington state. And um, and like, that's non-negotiable. Uh, like, you, you get to share the treasury and stuff. However, uh, now, like, there is a singular entity that, that, uh, that, like, has its fortune tied to it and so forth. Which is, uh, I mean, in my, in my opinion, uh, so what is all that, like, why is all this stuff uh, so powerful? Because ethnic machine voting is powerful. I mean, uh, you know, Willie Brown and Jim Clyburn are two of the most powerful people in, the, in America. That's kind of funny. Uh, I, well, Willie Brown. I mean, not anymore. Well, oh, sorry. I don't really know much about Willie Brown. He means Willie Brown's girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Well, that. And actually, I'm not even sure she's that powerful. She seems. I mean, I don't know if you, if you guys followed it, but uh, they seem to be uh, a bit past it now. But there was a period during the fall when the White House seemed to be leaking on her daily. Yes. To, to diss her. 
Yeah, it, uh, I, I used him interchangeably with Jim Clyburn. I know a ton about Jim Clyburn. Uh, who's a very- I don't know much about Clyburn, but listen, I'm from California, and I know a lot about Willie Brown, okay. who was a major player in California politics. Uh, and California passed a term limits initiative, a ballot initiative, in 1990. It was basically targeted at one person to get rid of Willie Brown, which they did. They got him out of office as the Speaker of the Assembly in 96. There's a really fascinating story behind that. The guy was such a good politician that even though the Republicans won the Assembly in 1994 for the first time since Ronald Reagan had been governor, Willie Brown was able to prevent a Republican from becoming Speaker three times in a row. I call it the year of the four speakers after the famous year of the four emperors in Roman history. And then, so he reinvented himself as mayor of San Francisco. And it turns out that Brown, you know, look, Brown is none of the the three of us's idea of of, of a great guy or a great politician. But as mayor of San Francisco, he basically had a sensible mayoral agenda, which is, I want to keep business happy. I want to keep the streets clean and orderly. I want to keep the city functioning. And I want to keep these progressive activists happy. And I want to, you know, address some of the concerns that they have. Brown today, San Francisco, I can tell you, is in really super bad shape. Uh, Brown today is considered an insane reactionary in San Francisco. (laughs) Because he says, like, you know, I don't don't really think we ought to have open-air drug markets. Like, I don't think it's right (laughs) that school children should have to trip over used needles on their way to school. People are like, how dare you? So, (laughs) anyway. That's interesting. I've always used them interchangeably. I've been to California once. I went to San Diego. It's beautiful. But uh, Yeah, it's beautiful. uh, People talk about them interchangeably. I I didn't realize he was sort because, you know, uh, Clyburn doesn't like actively rule some territory or whatever. He's a yeah. uh, he's a power broker kind of guy. But I don't. And you correct me if I'm wrong. Clyburn's not particularly left wing either, is he? Oh I mean, he's no, a Democrat. he does. Yeah. He does. Uh, he. I mean, he's he's whooped Bernie's. Uh, uh, Bernie has like a stable of guys, and he has a stable of guys, and he's whooped him every time. And he and he doesn't. Uh, the last time he whooped uh, Nina, one of his candidates, he didn't spend any money. He just goes to. Ch- he campaigns out of church and stuff. He's a very int- we talk about Clyburn all the time. He's a very very interesting figure, and he's in a similar way. He does a lot of these things that uh, I mean I I think he's he's a, he's very good at this at whatever politics is. Uh, he's very good at it. Uh, now, but anyways, you know, part of the ethnic machine voting, ethnic machine politics is very powerful, and it is a tomorrow thing. I think this is why people. Even in that Willie Brown example, this is why people, I, I think, are, 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 are times like this is when uh, you would look for a singular uh, uh, entity rule. Even, I don't know, if there's a lot of nostalgia in Chicago for the dailies now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, this, is a, this is a Caesarism kind of, this is, a, a, I don't know. See, I remember when I first looked up, because uh, I've been obsessed with Caesar like all my life. And uh, the first time I saw, I looked up Caesarism, and it was a slur for uh, a, yeah. the 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 Academy has always hated Caesar. And uh, but I don't want to skip all that. Let's go to I want to talk about the the Hillsdale thing because I think that is important. What you said about the the well, this is a very conservative education. Well, uh, by the way, let's say if it was all the men that built the modern world basically spent ninety percent of their school time uh, transcribing uh, Greek and Latin texts. Like, yeah. Hey, look, when Hillsdale was founded to be admitted to the college, not to graduate, to get in, you had to demonstrate that you could read Greek and Latin. Yeah, that's how Harvard was uh, 75 years ago, right? 
I didn't know that. Is yeah. That, is it re, as recently as that? Yeah. I, I don't know exactly when I, I, I posted a clip. It's like one of the only tweets I did that went viral. I, I cut a clip of a Yale professor saying that he, he, it's a very funny piece because he's, he's, uh, you can, he's being Straussian as people say. Uh, he says like, did you know there's people who think that, um, uh, and he, he describes that, that, uh, it, he's, he's teaching at Yale. He said, you know, 75 years ago, you had to speak Greek and Latin to, to, uh, to just apply. And he says, you know, there's people that think that they, that made them, uh, smarter. It, I, I can't do it in the moment, but then, uh, then the kind of education you get now, which, uh, <laughs> oh, that look, that was a common thought in education in, in the, on the whole Western world for several centuries that you can't really be an educated person without knowing classical languages. Yeah, I mean, and that's abandoned fairly recently. Yeah, Henry Adams' book. He he wrote that like he he bemoaned how his you know classical education didn't really prepare him for the for for the world, and he wished it had been a more modern one. Like reading now, I was like, nah, you 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 were you were good with what you got because we kind of experimented with alternate forms in the 20th century, and it is it's not turned out great. Well, yeah, and I could name any number of British and American figures who had essentially nothing but a classical education who. You know, turned out great. I mean, look, getting back to Machiavelli, Machiavelli says, read the histories, the ancient histories. He doesn't say read them just so you can learn the language, although he could read the languages. He didn't care about that for its own sake. He says, you got to read them for the lessons they contain. Yeah. Yeah, it, th- th- this is like, the, I don't know if it's the science brain or whatever, but it's like, it, it, it's not that, like, you can't use this, you can't use, uh, you know, ancient Greek and Latin on vacation. Uh, this yeah. is like, this this transcribing these I, I guess the best way that the that I think about it is that have you ever known someone that, that's really smart and they got smart basically by like uh, in some way mastering like uh, uh, or just reading uh, uh, a ton being uh, uh, like they read like fiction books great works of fiction the way others read like I don't know political science and stuff and that makes them just that may, to some people that can make them very smart those things. You know, yeah, no, uh, for sure, and and but but the the classics too. I think it's it's partly the and I, I say this as a as a language ignoramus. I was very bad at languages, um, except English. I think I'm okay at that, but I was bad at learning the other ones. It 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 it's a a mental challenge to learn the language itself, which is just makes your brain more agile. But then it's not just like coding, which can make your brain agile, but the content is vacuous. The content has wisdom in it, and so you're getting it on both levels. You get the mental agility challenge, and then you get all the lessons that, that are being conveyed, and that's just priceless. You think that's part of the reason, like we talked about Zuckerberg earlier, and his it's what or it's his sister, right, Bog Beef, mm-hmm. who's trying oh. to do like a, 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 essentially iconoclasm against the classics. She's like they're trying to destroy it, and we speculated on the reasons for this, and like you know, uh, there's the typical well, this is a jobs program for useless people, but also like you, you really uh, you they probably don't want people reading the classics. Yeah, no, that, you, that's my, I was going to say, and and I, now I'll be somewhat controversial. And mention um, a, a a a writer uh, whose book I reviewed, uh, Bronze Age Pervert. Uh, the book was called <laughs> Bronze Age Mindset, and he has made this point. Um, and he's he's clearly whoever he is a, a serious classicist himself because you know you can just tell when you read the book that he knows all the literature, and he says, look, they don't want the regime does not want kids reading these books. 
because so many of the lessons in these books run completely counter to regime propaganda. Now, as someone who has read the same books, I, I saw that and I just said, yeah, of course. I mean, like, you, there's no way you can come away. If, if, you, if you go into reading um, Livy or Plutarch or, you know, or, or, or Plato or Aristotle or you know, whoever you want to say, you're not going to come out thinking like uh, a modern woke liberal leftist regime apparatchik, whatever you want to call them, circa 2022 or circa 2015 or 2005. You're just not. You can only come out thinking that way if you're so-called guided through the book by someone who says, no, 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 here's what this really means. Here's what this obvious lesson that seems to say the opposite thing really means. And that's the only conclusion I will allow you to take from it. And I, I noticed, I started noticing this quite a while ago, um, you know, at least 10 years ago, 15 years ago, young people without, I, I say without an education, that's, that's mean and exaggerated, but without, you know, the credentials that I know, just Anons posting about books that I know online. And I read some of this stuff. And I, that's really interesting. So this is some young guy in his 20s, if, if what he's telling, you know, if what he's posting is true, taking from Xenophon or whatever the following lesson, which is very contrary to you know, modern liberal thought and, and deriving satisfaction from it and inspiration from it. And, I, you know, I took that as a kind of encouraging sign. And then, you know, some, some time later, Donna Zuckerberg says, oh, no, we, we have to... This is a threat to our democracy. I'm, I'm not sure that she said that, but so many people in her exact orbit who believe everything she believes have used that type of a language that I think it's fair enough. Um, yeah, look, 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 getting back to Strauss, I, you know, I mentioned Strauss a couple of times. I think when I first brought him up, somebody laughed. Uh, I don't know why I'm not asking any questions, but uh, Strauss says the main reason or one of the main reasons to read the classics is they challenge our modern liberal presuppositions. And Strauss is saying this in the 1950s, saying you need to read these people because they have a completely different perspective from yours and you need to listen to their perspective. You need to come to the discussion without presuppositions. In other words, don't impose your own ideas on the classics. So well, you love democracy. We all love democracy, right? Well, if you read Aristotle and Plato thinking that democracy is the greatest, yeah. then you'll either reject them or you'll say, well, they must love democracy. Because if, I, because if democracy is good and Plato and Aristotle are good, then they must love democracy. And Strauss says, no, actually, they're critical of it. And you need to listen to and understand their reasons for being critical of it. I have a question for you about that, though I want to... But as an aside, I laughed when you mentioned Strauss because you were like, oh, this is a person, he's kind of an obscure figure of Strauss. And I was laughing because uh, all, like in online politics, oh, people definitely know who he is. You hear all kinds of uh, theories about, oh, he's, a, he's the father of neoconservative. He's a, you know, no, he he's definitely these, like, not that. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just funny. He's like a really controversial figure. He, but, he, uh, he, he, he took in some people. Uh, well, took in is too much. It was like they came to live with him. That's not exactly right. He... Um, Many people who later became neoconservatives were either directly influenced or indirectly influenced by him. But Strauss himself, you know, definitely was not part of that. You know? Yeah, it smells like character assassination. But the, the actual thing I wanted to ask you, because you, this is the part about Plato and democracy. So in your, in your article from New Criterion, 
unprecedented. You, t- you talk about the cycle, of, the regime cycle, the cycle of regimes, and Plato, where he where he places democracy, it's very, it's it's just like one step above cats and dogs living together, and we're <laughs> yeah, all eating each other. Right now, when, when we talked about this like decentralized thing where you know children are attacking their parents, and like there's there, there's no there's no general, there's no king, there's no boss. It's just this you know roiling mass of people attacking each other. Like, do do you think this could be called, properly called what Plato would call democracy? Uh, n- well, no, I, I don't. Um, that I, I think he would object to it, but he wouldn't call it democracy. I mean, democracy, strictly speaking, in the original Greek means the rule of the demos, and the demos is a part of the city. The demos is the many. So mm-hmm. this is one of these things that doesn't really analogize perfectly to our world, right? In the ancient city... And a city in the ancient world is the political community. It's the country. It's the state. It's the whole thing, right? It, it's usually it means there's an urban core with a, a, a sur- surrounding you know farmland. So if you're Athens, the surrounding land isn't great because you're primarily a naval, seafaring, commercial power. But if you're Sparta, the surrounding farmland is actually pretty big. Either way, the city, the polis in Greek, um, and there are usually three parts, or two. There's always two parts, says Aristotle, in the city: the few and the many. You know, the rich and the poor, or the the the, the upper class and the the. And by the poor, we don't necessarily mean an urban mob. We just mean everybody who doesn't have a lot of money, who isn't particularly well born. Um, and the dem- democracy did not have the positive connotation in ancient Greece, or the ancient world generally, that it has today. Today. Um, I mean, today, democracy is a weird term because the people who praise it the most highly are the people who dispute or dismiss its true meaning. That is to say, everybody votes, everybody, you know, whatever the outcome is, you know, uh, that, that's what gets done. To them, no, no, no. D- democracy is not when Donald Trump wins. <laughs> democracy is when he loses. It doesn't matter if he actually gets a majority of the votes. It doesn't matter if this policy that we think is, you know, let's say we had a nationwide referendum on mask mandates tomorrow and it lost. That would be democratic in the modern understanding. Well, the elites would say, well, that's wrong because it violates elite consensus. So it violates expert consensus. Imagine if they had a referendum on gay marriage, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just gets imposed, right, by the courts, by administrative fiat. So democracy in the ancient world is the rule of a part of the city, sorry, of the whole of the city by a part of the city. Stakeholders specifically. Yeah, but not, not just sta- Actually, though, you know, the, 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 the stakeholders are in a way the few, the, the, the elites, the the people are just—they're not stakeholders in any particular institution or uh, uh, wealth—you know, wealth holdings and that kinds of thing. Um, democracy is when they rule everybody else. So, from the ancients' political perspective, democracy in America would look like basically a coalition of the have-nots, the deplorables, plus the blue working class, uh, the blue urban class the poor parts, not the ones living in the, in the fancy sliver apartments, um, ruling out of their economic interests against the landed uh, or moneyed elite. That's definitely not the regime of the United States today. The, reg- the rulers of the United States today are 
you know, I, I, I said this on Bongino today. It's a great essay. I urge you guys to read it and your listeners to read it by Michael Lind. In Tablet, within the last week, he says, the Democratic coalition or the Blue Coalition is an hourglass. It's top-heavy and it's bottom-heavy. It's got all of the big money at the top, and it's got all of the not big money, but the well-compensated sort of clerical upper class in the, in the knowledge industries. Upper class is maybe too strong, but let's say upper middle class. The people in six-figure jobs in urban cores who don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of wealth, don't really have a realistic prospect of obtaining the kind of big-time financial tech lobbying wealth that others have, but who serve their interests, whose role is to preserve their power and make arguments on their behalf. And then the rest of it is a, is a, is a coalition of the urban poor uh, or the urban working class, right? And there's no middle. There's no, you know, that, that old, the old Democratic core constituency of the union guy or the nurses and the teachers— well, to the, the teachers certainly are still there because they're uh, um, dependent on government. But the private sector union types, they're not part of it anymore, right? So, you know, what would Plato say? What would Aristotle look at our regime? He wouldn't call it democracy for t at least two reasons. One is the majority simply doesn't vote and rule. When the majority votes the wrong way, it gets overruled. And second, he would say um, this kind of top-bottom against the middle coalition is not really what democracy is. True democracy is the rule of the bottom half or the bottom two-thirds against the upper two-thirds. And that's definitely not what we have today. Plato doesn't contemplate, I don't know if he contemplated it or not, but he doesn't write about, neither does Aristotle, neither does Cicero write about this sort of top bottom against the middle coalition as a regime. And a regime fundamentally for ancient political science is who rules and for what end. Who's in charge? And what do they do with it? And there's no either historical or theoretical example in all of these books, at least the ones that I have read, where they say, you know, let's take the, the very thin, you know, the very, very top and, and glue it together with the, the, the bottom, who are obviously much more numerous, and have them act together in concert as a coalition against the middle. This is just does not happened in human history that I know of. And that's, you know, now that, now that I say that that way, I think, wow, I should have added that to my unprecedented article, and I didn't. <laughs> there, right now, of course, the, uh, the Democrats are in rough shape. They've had, um, then their last hope now is this, some kind of voting bill where they could get permanent vote by mail in a way that you don't need to uh, sort of verify who you are, So, which basically means someone could come to your building and um, uh, uh, just get all the names and submit this in. And that's necessary in their words to maintain democracy as we have it, you know, Tom Wolf had some great anecdotes about, you know, they, they started projects kind of like this in the sixties where like they would send these er, like earnest young yeah. college guys to the, to the ghetto. And like, you know, they would run into the, like the other part of the, of the coalition, which is like, you know, gang leaders. And, yeah. And no, this is in Mau Mauing the flat catchers. And, uh, not only do they run into the gang leaders, but eventually they concluded that the only legitimate leaders are the gang leaders and the and big time foundations with lots of money and highborn wasp leadership said, you know, I don't want to talk to these so called civil rights people. We got to go to the the gang members. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll I just will mention since you brought him up, um, Tom Wolf was a friend of mine. Uh, not not, really? not like a close friend. 
I knew him late in his life, but after I met him, uh, I actually hung out with him <laughs> a fairly frequent number of times. And he had been my hero since I first read him in 1989. And so that was one of the great blessings of my life was to get to know him and become become his, you know, friendly acquaintance, maybe is the, is the best way to put it. Those, uh, I, we, you know, Bald Beef and I, we're, we're, you know, we're a little, we're a little bit younger than you. And we would, uh, you know, in the early part of the, of the, the century, we would complain about how like history, everything's so boring now. You, you look at like the, what happened in the sixties and there were all these exciting political movements and, you know, people were, were, you know, as like Hunter S. Thompson or whatever, just living these unbelievable lives. And like, I feel like we're, if it, it seems almost like the cycles, it's like the, the, the wheel is turned and now like they're probably this new Zoomer generation. They're probably going to produce some people like that. Maybe not uh, his caliber, but like they'll they'll have some of those same experiences because the like the BLM movement and what happened in 2020, it, it it's it's almost it's almost funny how you can see the parallel between what he described and, and what happened in the late 60s. Yeah, no, it is. It, it is. There's a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of the lot same that, people that yeah there's a lot that's very 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 similar in fact i i remember seeing him right after the michael brown incident whatever you want to call it. i mean it was an incident and michael brown did die uh, but it was also a psyop that is to say he died he was shot by a police officer the national media and pressure groups and radical activists tried to make it seem like he was some innocent who was gunned down in cold blood all of that was not true uh and and you know you, you th- think back to how fat, far and fast we've moved um if that incident were to happen today i don't know i i ask you guys i i don't believe darren wilson could be exonerated i think the regime would have to sacrifice him to ball Certainly not. I, I don't. I don't. No, there's. I, I wouldn't think so. And they, that wasn't that long ago chronologically, but it feels like a. a big, yeah, a, I mean, it was eight. It was eight ago. years ago, or, or seven and a half, something like that. I um, um I just I just uh, Google searched for. I mean, news search Angela Davis, and I got a story here <laughs> two weeks ago. Angela Davis, the argument for police abolition. Well, I mean, you know, they were doing that in '68 too, so you know. If there's a poster child for police abolition, it would be Angela Davis. Yeah, well, Angela Davis, who's bought a shotgun that two days later was used to blow off the head of a Marin County judge. Uh, yeah. And what she gets rewarded with a full professorship at the University of California for that. I mean, this is one of those things that, you know... I, uh, That's that thing that we were talking about. I get, very, talk about. I get very cranky about. When I see injustice at that level rewarded um i get cranky let me put it that way my friends who know me well will say there might be another word to describe the mood that that puts me in but i i i I really do hate to see that i mean somebody like that deserves to be punished not to be showered with honors and a society that doesn't punish her is bad enough a society that then showers her with honors i find there's a there's an element of just the grotesque in that. Yeah. yeah well, as we've talked about, on our, we t- we do talk about patrons a lot, and I think that it, an, an overlooked aspect of the you know the BLM, the 2020 riots is that, and people don't seem to understand that, like letting your supporters run amok, burn things down, steal things, or or just simply beat their political opponents in the street 
is kind of a form of political patronage. Like it's just it's a favor you're giving to your supporters. You, you're you're exempted from from the law here, and people don't understand. Like how well, how could it help the the government of San Francisco to let people steal from retail outlets with impunity? Well, you know, if if those people have rendered you a service like they did uh, two years ago before the elections, you know. There you go. That's that's all you need. You're 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 kind of paying them off for for something that they for services rendered. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something to that. But I also think that they there's an extent to which the, and this is a hopeful thought. I don't have a whole lot of them, but here's one that <laughs> they 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 haven't thought this through. They don't really know what they're doing, and. And they're afraid. They're afraid of the pushback from their supporters if they try to, you know, if they yes. try to stop or, or rein anybody in. And there's also a sense in which these people are lost. They're really lost. They don't have any kind of grounding in, in any sort of higher truth. And so they come to be true believers in utter nonsense. Um, I know I, I don't want to pat myself on the back over much. I will say this in my own defense. Like, you, you could, you could you know, lock me in a room and try to brainwash me for 30 years and tell me that up is down and white is black and night is day and good is evil and all of this stuff, and I'm, I'm never going to believe it. You could say, like, no, 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 rioting is mostly peaceful. Um, breaking windows is not violence because it's just property. Uh, all, all the lies that we've heard over the last couple of years, and I'm never going to believe it because I was fortunate enough to have good parents, get a good grounding, and then and, not, and then not be corrupted in school, but to actually get from an education what an education is supposed to do, which is to take basic common sense, basic decency, what you already know, and deepen it and deepen the reasons for it and not just say, all of that's garbage, right? The Ten Commandments are garbage. Moral virtues are garbage. Ordinary, decent, normal behavior is garbage. You're going to learn the opposite. I got, I got the exact opposite of that education. I was like, this is why this is all true, but we're going to tell you deeper reasons why it's true. We're not just going to leave it at the surface of what you think. We're going to go right down to the root and you're going to come out with essentially the same conclusion for how you're going to deal with ordinary everyday behavior. And we don't do that anymore, and we and we especially don't do that anymore for elites. So these elites, they have, you know, to make it a, a medical analogy, maybe appropriate for the time of COVID, they have no natural immunities to utter moral garbage and nonsense. You go to an elite and you say, like, well, you know, not only is it just, not only is it excusable to torch cities and burn them down, it's justifiable and it's a good thing, and they go, yeah. Right, a normally normal common sense rebels against that, but also uh, uh, any kind of regime or civilization or people with sense would teach their people to rebel against that and give them reasons. And these people that we have running things now, they have no inner reserves, either spiritual, moral, or intellectual reserves to fight that, to say no, to think no in their own head, and then to have the courage to say no. And that's, I think, one of the deepest reasons why we're in the mess that we're in. And so, yeah, you got, you know, you got people like me, and you got people like you, you two, and some others who can say no, but we're not in power. The, 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 <laughs> All we can what, do is make an argument. This is funny that, like, uh, the, we're repeating. I think time 
is sped up with uh, speed of communication stuff. Uh, I don't know if Joe Biden would make it that long, but you know, uh, when you have these cities and they're super dangerous, uh, there's only so much of this kind of social justice that would people accept being beaten and killed and stuff, uh, which. There is a little bit of that. We saw these, you know, these insane articles where people say, "Yes, I was mugged," but you know, the guys shouldn't go to jail and stuff. Um, uh, there's only so much of that. You know, which we've we've already done this once before. Biden, I don't know if he'll make it that long. Biden could preside over the next Democratic bill to put all uh, uh, to, super predators in jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they, they have so many ways. You're talking about those these insane well, lies. So no, this gets to the point I was just making. I mean, look, I. I I spent my. I, I just wrote an article not long ago. I was reviewing a book called San Francisco <laughs> uh, by Michael Schellenberger. I don't know him. That's his name. That's the author's name. And he's a he's he's a left wing guy. Not not hard left, or he wouldn't have written this book. But his basic point was, and I think that summed up in the subtitle: how progressivism ruins cities. And his point was. These policies are not good. They're not good for the city itself. They're not good for the people who live there. And they're not good for the people they're ostensibly trying to help. In other words, drug addicts, the homeless, the, you know, the disadvantaged, the poor, et cetera. Yeah, which, um, yeah, which doesn't matter to them. Like it's, that, That's an important point, but it's not naive that like we're saying it to them. This is kind of like, uh, you know, you're talking about these insane lies. They say, you know, now everyone says, well, Reagan caused AIDS, basically, you know. Yeah. Well, people were saying that in the 80s when, you know, when I was when I was in high school and Reagan was still the president. But my takeaway from Schellenberger's book is this is genuine conviction driving this, you know, and and I've been waiting. uh, I've been waiting. So the cities used to be hypocritical in the sense that they were very liberal, but they their their liberalism stopped at the point where they they would think, well, yeah, but I don't want to get shot walking to the grocery store, therefore we have to have a strong NYPD um, you know, policing the streets in an effective manner. They're not hypocrites anymore, and they're suffering for it. That is to say, no, 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 my conviction requires that we defund the police, that we not prosecute certain crimes, that we, have, we eliminate cash bail, that we do all of these things that these elite citadels are doing. And I, I, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop, whatever metaphor you want to use, but I haven't seen it yet. All I've seen so far, it, well, I, 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 I shouldn't say that. I've seen a couple of examples. But, uh, you know, that is to say, you know, the mayor of San Francisco has said, all right, the, the Tenderloin, which is the worst neighborhood in the city, cannot be an open-air drug market anymore. But she's getting massive pushback from progressive activists and progressive voters in the city who say, no, 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 this is outrageous. You can't, you can't shut down, you know, fentanyl markets on the street uh, without being you know, racist and uncompassionate and this and that. Uh, I don't know where this is going to go, but I, I, when people, I guess I, I don't necessarily rebel, but I question, I pause when people say, no, 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 there's a plan behind it all. <laughs> uh, because look, uh, like I said, I said this earlier, you know, one of you said, I've never been north of the Mason-Dixon line, or maybe only once, right? <laughs> I spent my whole life in or near San Francisco, L.A., Washington, and New York. So I'm pretty much, um, <laughs> I, had a, I, had a different, <laughs> I had a different life than you guys. Let me put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and I saw these places at their absolute best. I saw them after they kind of hit bottom in the 60s and 70s. And 
serious mayors and police chiefs cleaned them up, and I've enjoyed my time there. And I watched them fall so fast, so hard the last two years. And I don't see any, not, not any is too strong. I, I see very little, much too little political popular pushback from people saying, no, I can't live here. This is horrible. And this is a beautiful place. This is a place where all kinds of interesting things happen and economic activity takes place. And I want it to be good and I want it to work and I want it to function. How dare you run it into the ground like this? But and 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 they're not they're they're so committed to the ideology that they're not willing to say that. And then finally, what mystifies me the most is these are the places where the rulers of our regime live, play, and work, right? Yeah. I don't live in I don't live in downtown. I cannot afford to live in you know Pacific Heights or the Upper East Side or Calorama. Right? These are the most expensive places in America and among the most expensive places in the world. To live in them, you have to have tens of millions of dollars. And you want to live among your peers and you want to go to the restaurants and you want to go to the clubs and the shows and the parties and everything. You want to be among people who are just as elite and as important as you are. And that's important to these people. I know that because I used to live among them and I know many of them. And they allowed these places to be, if not destroyed, at least seriously degraded and made unsafe. And, 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 they, and they responded with their feet, you know? I mean, how many, uh, I, I don't know the number, but I can tell you the number is a high, of, of elite Manhattanites just said, well, I'm going to Greenwich, or I'm going to my second home here or there or wherever. They're just not going to tolerate it anymore. So they let the place get burned down. Effective. I mean, I know it wasn't burned down. Manhattan is still standing, but it's Manhattan is not anything close to what it was two years ago, and the elites just leave, right? I, 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 I I'm asking you guys, what did they get out of that? Okay, uh, you made a, you made an important distinction there at the end because I I had the answer the whole lot well, and I do think I can I can <laughs> do something with that. Now there is definite conviction. Like I know people that have no reason to no invested reason, and and they've thought like um. Uh, so what we always tell people is there's a YouTube channel called Police Activity. <laughs> and all they do is they just post every police, uh, the badge cam footage of every shooting that there is. Good, bad, and it doesn't matter. They just post them all. And uh, we've shown that to people. And uh, when people start watching it, they start thinking different about what it's like to approach a person uh, uh, in America is with a badge on. Uh, that's just, uh, I'm not the most pro police person in the world. However, like, uh, that's, that's like, so th that is there now, but to go on, what do they, what do they get now? Like now what the elites get, that's a different question, but what is the political, like, what does the political system get? Well, I mean, so that I think is straightforward because we've seen what they've want. Even Bernie has put forward things, uh, sort of tipping the hand there. So, uh, basically the police unions are not part of the progressive, uh, progressive alliance. And they're right. giving huge parts of this of these city budgets to these people that are not their friends. What is the old? What's the oldest rule in politics? Is to to take from your enemies and give it to your friends. And they their dream. There's two different versions of this dream. So like, uh, if they were doing perfect Machiavellian politics, uh, there's two ways they would go about. It. They they both uh, written papers on this. So one of them would be the police. Like NYPD is gone, and it's replaced by something 
uh, where they performing the same functions, but they ha- but they have like graduate degrees. And in, in other words, they're 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 part of the the class uh, that uh, that defines the progressive movement, right? So you need uh, you need uh, some kind of like sociology degree to be whatever a cop would be. Uh, and, uh, you know, get into specifics that might mean that like, uh, like a bunch of advisors on the police or something, but, uh, that now B, which is even more, uh, 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 illustrative given the current conditions is that they would just replace because uh, there's so many reasons why they would love this. Uh, imagine you're, so, you know, th- that situation happened in Minneapolis, right? Uh, you know, the mayor who's like super progressive, uh, he's caught in this weird situation because uh, he's like him and the, and the city council are literally in charge of the police. Uh, and so that makes a very uncomfortable situation because uh, he's like in charge of these people, but he also like needs to not die. And, uh, <laughs> and so he does have to tell them to do these things. And But what would be much favorable is if the police was federalized. And he could say, well, I don't know. That's just some racist guys. But also, then the police, the the would if it affect all federal, I mean, I don't know about all. I'm, I'm not saying anybody's bad people, especially people like uh, U.S. Marshals and stuff like that. But, like, uh, you know, federal police are part of the progressive movement, and local police and state police are not. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, this doesn't answer the question of like you know right. What, what, yeah. You, you, you mix me up at the end with the elite thing because I don't know the answer there. That that is. Well, I mean, I I can take a crack at it. I mean, they they miscalculated. They believed, like they actually believed the textbook idea that you can reprogram human beings and you can create a utopia on yeah. Earth if if you have if you get people to read Maya Angelou. I or think whatever. that's like, part of it. They you know they're utopians and they think that. No, we can achieve this heaven if only all of our policies, you know. And, and then, of course, the other left-wing argument is, and it's a trope, but it's true because it's it's a trope because it's true, is whenever something fails, they go, well, it hasn't really been tried, right? We just, yeah. we just didn't go far enough. Well, you know, if I could if I could propose a, a white pill, does Michael Anton know what a white pill is? <laughs> yeah, he does. Okay. But he doesn't believe they exist. Yeah, he's pretty. He's pretty based, and I'm. I know you know what that is. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me. I'll propose one. In your, it, this kind of relates to what we're talking about. In your, in your article, you were talking. You know, you you talked about the all oh, the. There's, it's unprecedented. You know, iconoclasm. They're tearing down the monuments to the to the people who founded the country. They're destroying. You know, the the everything that binds us together. You can't. People can't even agree on uh, if if someone's male or female. And like this, this is not. There's. You can't really find a source that could like say well here's an example of this happening and here's how it turns out the only the only thing i can think of that came close to this what that where someone in charge of a massive empire tried to impose these kind of changes as rapidly as they're being imposed on us there's two i can think of and ironically enough these people are now who were reviled throughout history are now like be, becoming i guess they're 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 having their their legacy looked at again you know re- revisionist history which was uh, Echinaden the pharaoh and uh, I'm, I'm probably gonna mess the name up Elagabalus uh, Elagabalus Heliogabalus yeah yeah that was his I'm sorry I dead named him didn't I yeah right so there's these there are two figures who essentially they wanted to take the most powerful 
nation on earth in their time and just completely changed the culture of it overnight because of their, uh, you could say, insanity. And they were also, not coincidentally, they were both really sketchy on the, the whole gender thing, right? The whole sex, like male or female. And in, in both cases, uh, as soon as they were dead or in the latter's case, uh, his own followers killed him and just well, the soldiers of, killed him yeah right right he was he was they were both pretty much tried to be erased from history and everybody just said nah let's let's just let's not do it. we'll forget we'll forget this we'll pretend this never happened forget about it we're gonna go back to the old ways so like i it, well while it is difficult for us to imagine that like you you couldn't you envision a scenario where Someone says, you know, the last the last thirty or forty years have been pretty screwed up. Maybe we should just call a mulligan on this. And I mean, and, yeah, yeah. I, I, what I can imagine, but I, I don't expect, is somebody who says, you know what, guys, let's let's have a conference. You know, like the 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 you mentioned the Godfather two. So there's a conference in Godfather one, right? They show this exterior shot of the Federal Reserve Bank of Lower Manhattan. Um, it's based on that the famous Appalachian Conference, mm-hmm. uh, which is a real attempted conference of mob bosses that was broken up by the New York State Police in '56 or '7 or something. Anyway, but like, let's imagine—I don't think these things happen, but maybe they do. I, I don't know about them. But let's imagine the ruling class had a conference and they got together like that. You know, is it conceivable that someone would say, "You know, we won. We have everything. We control everything." We have the bank, you know, remember Tom Hagen at the beginning, he says, right now we have the gambling, we have the unions, and those are the best things to have, right? <laughs> so he says, we got the universities, we got the banks, we got the tech companies, we got the administrative state, and those are the best things to have. We got it all. Let's back off a little bit. Let's not, we don't need to press any further. <laughs> we want. Let's just let the money roll in. Let's, you know, let's get the heat off of us. Let's just be calm and, and, and enjoy the fruits of victory. Uh, it seems to me that would be a rational response from them. But they're not saying that. They're saying, like, no, no. I mean, look, you guys, I'm sure, paid attention to, not that I did, or at least I tried not to, but it cracks through no matter what, however you try to avoid it, the grotesque coverage of the January 6th anniversary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All we hear is... American democracy is more fragile than ever. We're on the brink of civil war. There's domestic terrorism and insurrection around every corner. It's crazy, right? They're they're either insane, which I think is likely or plausible, or they're afraid. Uh, But of what? I don't know. I mean, if I were... You know, if I were in a position of power and I controlled all the things that I just mentioned and more, I'd feel pretty confident. I'd think, you know what? Whatever you want to throw at me, I'm going to beat you. I got the military. I got the intelligence community. I got the administrative state. I got the banks. I got the tech companies. I got basically every Fortune 500 company in America. Maybe the energy sector is still a bit outside of my complete control, but I can I can control it through regulatory action. Plus, companies like Exxon and Chevron are already talking about going carbon neutral and green. I mean, when you can get an oil company to talk like that, I mean, you know you've won. So what the hell am I worried about? It's yeah, you're right. not that confident because they rationally think that they haven't really established complete control. Uh, I don't know. That's a possibility. Or they're just crazy. 
Uh, and that's also a possibility. I'll give you one example. So two days in a row, my wife went grocery shopping uh, where we live in the n- near orbit, let us say, at Washington, D.C. You can't buy milk anywhere. It's gone. There's nothing on the shelves. You saw the other day bare shelves Biden was trending uh, on Twitter. Um, uh, th- that's one of the reasons why. You know, the, I think if, if, and I say if because I don't know, if they're becoming less confident, it's because they know they don't know what they're doing and the system isn't working and they don't know how to fix it. And people are noticing. You're right. They're not, it's not rational because they're not rational. They're, it's, the whole thing is deeply unnatural. And this kind of forces you to, to talk in almost metaphysical terms, which people are uncomfortable with today. But this is the – I mean, when, when your rubber meets the road, this is, this is where you're at. Like, why do people – lose their minds over res- like respiratory viruses why is everybody why are there people who have a, a large portion of our population who think that somehow you could shut everything down you could in- essentially end human contact and you could keep you could keep milk on the shelf you could have children develop properly and, and, and still live the life that you've been accustomed to you know for the last hundred years while you just one by one stripped away these vital aspects of not just uh, you know, the like the economy but human interaction and this the, the answer is there it, it is extremely they're unnatural they don't have a worldview that would make sense to any any human being who lived before 19 55. Oh, like uh, later than that, I think. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I'm, being re- yeah, I'm being really generous. Yeah. Like, uh, but you, I mean, I shouldn't say anyone, because that's not true, because there have always been insane people who, who have had these similar fantasies. Yeah, I kind of, kind of listed two of them. Like, there's two guys who thought that I'm so powerful, I can decide that I'm female. Right? Mm. That's, there were that's, people like that that uh, the, the, the pilgrims uh, told them they would kill them uh, unless they go back to England, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's all. It's I I like to call these people Gnostic, which gets me in trouble sometimes. Like our religious friends on Twitter, because like I know Gnostic has a distinct meaning in Christian theology. But what I mean, like these, like their outlook is entirely Gnostic, and there it has nothing to do with what's going on around them. And I think that what's happening now, why they're getting scared, like you're talking about, is because. Some of them probably are starting to realize that that their basic assumptions were wrong, and that they have no either no idea what's going to happen, or they do know what's going to happen, and it's going to involve everybody being angry at them, and then possibly. Well, everybody's angry at them. Maybe not everybody, but lots and lots of people are angry at them now. But the easy way to, if not uh, eliminate, at least assuage or mollify that anger, is to back off a little bit. And they're not backing off. Mm. They just, you know, I used to say, you know, I, I used this line in an article I wrote, I don't know, gosh, five and a half years ago now, that, you know, they, they just, it's going to be pedal to the floor. But they were at the floor three years ago, two years ago. I mean, <laughs> they're through the floor. Like, can you push the pedal through the floor and make the engine go faster? Well, they're trying. They, they have to. This is, uh, this is some, I think this is kind of tied in with the elite overproduction thing where it's like, uh, okay, so when Angela Davis makes those decisions in 68, uh, so someone, Richard Hanania, was writing about that, like, when she was doing that, she knew, like, uh, 
she was betting on this thing, like what I was talking about earlier, but some the stock of whatever this progressive thing that it's going to be bigger that, than than whatever these people in the courtroom are doing. And I, I, another example you can see is someone like uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren lying about her her uh, her uh, ethnicity back then. Like uh, that was very clever back then. Like today, everyone knows all that stuff. And today, like the thing is, like. There's enough room for the Angela, every Angela Davis to get a uh, professor job uh, if you choose from out of the people doing that stuff back in 68. Uh, most of them. <laughs> a couple of them ended up on the most wanted list, but uh, other, most of them. Uh, to, this is the problem for them is that, like, have you ever have you seen whenever they put up a, 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 an ad for a job where it doesn't, um, which, by the way, the, these jobs are even better than they were before now because of COVID because they don't have to appear in an office now. Even if you're like a college librarian or something, you, you, you just uh, sit at home and smoke weed. Uh, but the, these bureaucratic <laughs> jobs, which are you know, guaranteed by the government and stuff, uh, and especially the university and the, that made it double worse because the, like uh, the place that produces the elites also becomes the place where the elite, like the best job for the elites. So this just creates this like uh, uh nuclear feedback overdrive. Loop, and like uh, the thing is uh, you can't have like, uh, you know, eight million Angela Davis is running around because there's not enough professor jobs. So they, this is this is to build back better, and it's just nuclear, uh, and it's it's uh, it's gonna go it's gonna go crazy. But yeah, like they were early adopters, and now like we're reaching like the greater fool yeah. stage, right? You're you're eventually gonna be left holding the bag with the two hundred thousand dollars in student debt. You're not gonna get I, your, I would, your fake off. To me, the, the Angela Davis in '68, she's looking at the progressive movement at, at its heights of its power. When like uh, just random people's grandchildren are thinking. Thinking like I'm going to be a player in this movement. That means uh, it's about to be played out, you know. But uh, I, I want to talk about some. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't. I mean, now is the height of its power. I mean, it's more powerful now than it was then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's like uh, there's different levels to look at these things. So I look at these things like on all, on all these individual actor levels, which uh, I I think I mean I see the thing as pretty rational, but I'm not looking at it at the same levels as other people. And okay, well, okay, but yeah. In 1967 or whenever Angela Davis uh, judge, like it, it, getting I think it was 70, but I'll look it up. My apologies. Getting, right. getting away with it. Yeah, was that's true. So, she was, didn't actually pull the trigger. But yeah, she supplied the weapon. <laughs> yeah, we might want to delete me saying that because that's probably she could sue this. Anyway, anyway, uh, <laughs> the the point is when she did when she uh, allegedly did those things. Uh, it was notable. Like, getting away with it was notable enough that she became a national figure. Like today, that wouldn't be. It, it would. It would maybe make. Uh, you know, a blurb on CNN. It happens all the time. People get to get away with far worse crimes, assuming that they're in the proper position on a progressive stack. Like we've seen it happen at least twice in the last year or two. And and, and, and these people weren't Angela Davis tier. Either so, like I think he's right. This is has to be the height of the movement. This has become almost. Uh, yeah, I mean, it has to be. Look, the movement didn't have the corporations. It didn't. It was the universities were liberal, but they weren't lockstep ultra left the way they are now. They didn't have. I mean, think about just the national security state. What was the FBI doing in the late sixties? It was it was spying yeah. on left wing activists like Angela Davis. It wasn't aiding and abetting whatever the heck it does. I mean. We, we, you know, look, I, um, I think it's been reasonably well established that the FBI was entirely behind 
uh, well, not entirely behind, but that it egged on and, and precipitated the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping. And there's lots of unanswered questions about what the FBI may or may not have been doing on January 6th that have been um, pushed out in non-traditional media that they have refused to be answered. And, and Ted Cruz, you know, who stuck his foot in his mouth last week and called January 6th a terrorist attack, uh, an odd terrorist attack that involved no weapons on the part of the attackers, as far as we know, not even the supposed fire extinguisher that the New York Times assured us was used to beat a Capitol Police officer <laughs> to death. That turned out to be entirely fake. Um, uh, and, and Cruz, uh, to his partial credit, um, was invited to go on Tucker Carlson to defend that remark and repudiated it. <laughs> yeah, he begged for forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, That's better than doubling down, I mean, which is what most people do in that circumstance it these was. days. Yeah, it was, it was uh, for him, yeah, it's, it's almost reflexive. But yeah, or, or if you compared the at the, at the time of uh, her trial, like like what was the, the, the big count, like, one of the most popular TV programs was like what All in the Family. If we're if we're talking seventies, right? Yeah. It, which was like a very uh, progressives now claim it and like uh, it was a satire or whatever. But like even then, it was like, oh, you have to mix in this message with something that's going to appeal to middle America. They don't do that anymore. No, watch exactly. No, that's, something that, on Netflix. That's the point of a piece that I wrote. My, you know, the most recent thing that I published was called "Blue America's Messaging Problem." And on the the American mind, if you want to well, read it, if your listeners want to read it, and my basic point was, the time was that you 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 gave some kind of rhetorical feint to your political adversaries. You said, well, you know, this is what I'm going to do for my base, but this is what I'm going to do for everybody, and that includes you. Blue America does not have that message for Red America. It doesn't say you'll get X or Y. Yes, you're not, you know, my core. This is my core constituency over here, and I'm going to do everything I can for them. But, you know, I'm not going to leave you out. Blue America instead says to Red America, you're evil. I'm going to punish you, right? You, you, you are going to get it good and hard because you deserve it. And you may think you didn't do anything to deserve it, but you deserve it because of the way you were born. And your children deserve it. And you will always deserve it. I mean, it's, I've never heard this. This is another thing that's unprecedented in electoral politics, if we can call it electoral politics anymore. It's, I've never heard somebody say, I need your vote, you're evil, and I'm going to screw you when I, when I get in power. <laughs> now, now, clearly, they don't think they need you know, red votes. So why campaign for red votes if you don't think you need the red votes? But you could also say, you know, Machiavelli has a, a famous saying that Strauss highlights. Where he says, there's no need to say to a man, give me your weapon. I want to kill you with it. All you need to say is give me your weapon. Once you have the weapon, you can easily satisfy your desires, right? <laughs> so why do they say to, to Red America, we're going to stick it to you? Uh, Seems to me the reason is because they know that that message resonates with the blue foot yeah. soldiers. They need to they need to rally their side and say, our purpose is to stick it to these people, right? And then and then to get back to the celebration parallax, when we say, wait a minute, you're saying your political program is to stick it to us? Then they yell at us and say, how dare you be divisive and accuse us of that? And then I say, well, wait, you just said it. Yeah. It, well, that doesn't that's not exculpatory. That, like it doesn't doesn't matter that you're quoting my own words back to me. I get to say it, you don't get to say it. And if you say it, you're a liar and a fantasist and a conspiracy theorist. The, the, in fact, you're required to lie. I, I called this in another article the lie back imperative, 
right? Which is, I, I come up to you, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a blue radical, and I go, I, I want to take all your money. And I go, well, you want to take all my money? And they say, how dare you say that? You're required <laughs> to say back to me, this is the way this conversation is supposed to go. I want to take all your money. My response is required to be, you don't want to take all my money. It's like that scene from Star Wars. These aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. They expect us to lie to them about something they just said out loud. So that the idea is that only their supporters get to hear it and be motivated by it. And we have to, not only do we have to pretend it didn't happen, we have to affirmatively say it didn't happen. Yeah. So like we are, like uh, we are, both of us, we are deplorable. So we were tuned into this, uh, <laughs> that, that thing. And we, we both noticed it at the time. Uh, so and like, I remember when I told you this, Mark, I said, why doesn't she even lie to us? Like, because, uh, that was like, so it was Hillary was the last person to, to stop. And, ba- and cause, uh, uh, I don't know if people, so Bill Clinton signed like basically the most evil law in history, uh, NAFTA, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, he definitely made uh, concessions to uh, good old boys. Uh, yeah, that was his whole. That was his yeah. whole. Yeah, that was his whole persona. That was yeah. how he defeated the. the uh, yeah, they. Uh, he made all. Yeah. Anyways, to, to, well, don't, uh, to, uh, no, I don't, uh, don't understate that. You know, my family were they were Democrats uh, from the probably the, when the party was started until yeah. uh, until Carter. And then they they went back to Clinton and voted for Clinton in, in every other election uh, since since Reagan, aside from his elections, they voted Republican. But like for for for, for the for Slick Willie, they you know stuck with the, yeah. with no, the party. Bill Clinton is exactly uh, an example of what I'm talking about. He offered. Now I don't think he was serious. About, well, eh, you know I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He was serious about it. He offered something to Red America. He offered something to middle America, to the South, to fly over country, to rural America. He says, I have a program that's going to make your lives better. I care about you, and I'm going to do concrete things for you. Even Barack Obama said that. Now, him, him, it's much easier to say, at least for me to conclude, that he was disingenuous. But he pretended, okay? Yeah, he made the uh, clinging, you know, bitter clingers comment. And so that shows you where Barack Obama's really coming from. And what do you expect a guy— with his background, Occidental College, Columbia University, Harvard Law School, you know, Chicago politics. This is not someone deeply in touch. Grew up in Honolulu. This is not somebody deeply. His mom was in the CIA. Yeah, his, right. He's his not somebody very, deeply in touch his, with, uh, with, with Red America, uh, you know, good old boy concerns. But he <laughs> thought that it was necessary and or beneficial for him to pretend that he cared. They're not, they're not pretending anymore. In fact, they're not even silent. This is the interesting part. They're not even, it's, I mean, one thing is just be like, I don't care about you, so I'm not going to talk about you. All I'm going to do is appeal to my supporters. They attack constantly. Mm-hmm. And part of it is I already answered the reason why, because they know it appeals to their supporters. Um, but one of the things that I find mystifying and hilarious is they're really upset that Reds don't like them. Like, they're like, how dare you? Like, how, how could you possibly vote for the orange man? How could you object to our program? Why are you so recalcitrant? Why do you protest? Why do you, you know, like you should just be incredibly grateful that we're here, that we're better than you and smarter than you, and we're ruling you for your benefit. And instead, you're 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 ungrateful. I mean, I don't know. I I, I it seems to me a normal human reaction that when you're treated 
with hatred and disdain constantly, you don't tend to love the person or people who treat you like that back. To be surprised by the lack of love after you've done the mistreatment is, to me, a sign of uh, emotional immaturity or just complete idiocy. But they're surprised and angry. They're angry. Why don't you love me? Why aren't you acquiescing? Why aren't you bowing and scraping? Why aren't you obeying? Why are you questioning me? Right? How dare you? They're angry about it. And I think this also fuels the kind of pedal to the floor or pedal through the floor uh, posture that they've taken. Yeah. I, I think like the pat like for the, the since like, I don't know, uh, when people say the great awakening, I guess like 2012, 2013, the basis of the progressive movement was basically uh, everybody, it'll be all of us in a coalition versus uh, white men somehow. Uh, that, 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 per, that, uh, uh, whatever that is, uh, that doesn't seem like it's going to survive much longer because uh, Asians and, and Latin uh, uh, people don't seem to, um, it, it's just it, it, the, the numbers, the, the demographics, uh, that thing, uh, they're going to need another story and they'll, they'll have another story. I'm sure, you know, it'll be hard though, because they've, they've invested so much. You know, we talked about Angela Davis and we're going back 50 years. Um, it's been a 50-year project, a 60-year project almost, or even longer. You know, this is one of the things, you know, whenever I talk to Curtis, you know, wh- whatever you say to Curtis, he'll always say, oh, you think it started this year? Well, let me tell you a story that <laughs> happened 10 years or 30 years before that. And I say, Curtis, if, if we're going to play that game, then we might as well say it started with the Big Bang or the creation <laughs> because, you know, we got to pick a date at some point. Yes, everything is connected. But they, they've, they've got so much invested over the years in anti-whiteness that it'd be hard for them to give that up. And I think you're right that the demographic cracks in that project are showing, but they don't have a replacement glue. So the people that that holds together, that rhetoric holds together, it it still is effective with them, even though they're losing people on the margins. But if you take it away, what's the substitute that still holds it together? And now they've always had a problem with this rhetoric in that, um, you know, they white women, right? So they, you know, you you guys know the um, Democrats always like to talk about, oh, the gender gap. Women go much more for Democrats than for Republicans. And what what they mean by that is a a woman's woman's vote is more morally valuable, more morally legitimate than a man's vote. So the gender gap is a problem for Republicans. But when you control for marriage, the gender gap goes away, uh, which means in sheer demographic numbers, they don't win... uh, uh, women buy enough to secure the success of the coalition um, because too many married women, married white women, still vote Republican. Um, if, you know, if women voted like blacks vote, which is usually 90-10 or 95-5 or 88-12, I mean, it's, it, the numbers differ slightly from election to election, but they're always very lopsided. The Republicans would never have any kind of a chance at all. But that's not the case. Uh, thank you for talking to us because we are anons, uh, anonymous. And you, you brought up a Bronze Age pervert as well. Uh, he's great. He's anonymous, and he's a player out here. Anon- anonymity is something that's come out. America, you want you had something you wanted to. Well, I just want to say well, our our guest started out as an anon. You you, you posted under the name what uh, Decius Publius, uh, Publius Decius, right? Yeah, it was Decius, and then one article I used the his full Roman name from Livy. But uh, I was only, I was only an anon 
you know, for a few months in 2016. And I, I don't say this to diss Anons. I just, I, I never sort of meant to be anonymous forever. Um, I just sort of needed to get through a particular period and it was an election and I had something to say and I couldn't wait. I had to say it right then. But um, I was very proud of what I wrote. And, and, you know, a lot of people figured out who I was. And, you know, some would say, I know it was you. And I didn't deny it. Others would say, was that you? And I'd say, yeah. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I just needed to kind of get past a certain uh, uh, finish line. But, uh, I, but I, I never expected it to hold. And I didn't want it to hold. You know, like I wasn't uh, afraid or ashamed. Of go, oh, you wrote that? I was always, my plan was always to say, hell yes. Um, and in fact, I even said hell yes long before it was officially known. Yeah, the... the just in private. We, we, we've talked to Chris Busker. He's American greatness. And uh, Yeah, I know. I know Chris. Yeah, I'm sure Chris. You, I write for them. I write for them all the yeah, time. Yeah, well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the sto- did the story go that you wrote a pro-Trump article and and it was turned, it, they rejected it because at, at, at like 2015, there weren't a lot of outlets you, that wanted to hear that. Yeah, so I wrote one in late 15... Uh, early 16. I think I wrote it in late 15 and then wanted it published. It was anyway before the, the primaries in the, uh, uh, you know, either Iowa or New Hampshire. And it was rejected. And it was rejected by a magazine that I had been affiliated with for 20 years. And, you know, started a blog with a group of guys. And we did the blog for several months. And it became a, it really caught on. It got a pretty big following called the Journal of American Greatness. And, then some of the other guys wanted to shut it down because we were getting too much attention. We all had, you know, other jobs, and they they, they shut it off. And Chris uh, and two other friends of mine and colleagues, all with Claremont connections. So Claremont's a town in L.A. County, California, with a grad school, with a college where we all went to school. Got together and they started American Greatness as a kind of follow-on to the Journal of American Greatness, but with the same basic outlook. So I've been, you know, I was helpful in. You know, Chris really did all the the work in starting it up. Chris, Julie, and Ben. Chris did the administrative work. Julie and Ben did the editorial. I contributed a bunch of pieces in the in the fall of uh, you know throughout the rest of 2016, uh, and then I went into the administration and I was there for about a year and a half. And since I've been out, you know, I've been I've been writing for them you know, consistently, not regularly. Sometimes months will go by and I don't do anything because I'm working on other things. But sometimes, you know, I have three pieces up, you know, in two weeks. Um, it's just the way my writing goes. I write in spurts. Sometimes I guess got a lot to say and sometimes I'm busy with other things or nothing's occurring to me or I'm writing a long format book or this or that. But yeah, that's, that's you know, how that you didn't, went down. You didn't shoot a cop or anything, but, uh, at, at that, at that <laughs> moment in 2015 where you say, no, no, I think this populist thing is, is where it's going to be. I think this Trump thing is where it's going to be. There's a little bit of that Angela Davis thing going on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like there was a yeah. CBC yeah. journalist like last week or something just left the CBC. It's like I'm gonna uh, sort of uh, uh, do some populist stuff. I mean, to, look, I, I, my my journey to this what, immigration was the big issue for me first because I come from California and I saw what it did to California and I thought this is a problem. And I've been I've been waiting a long time for somebody in the Republican Party to take seriously this as a challenge to to our nation. And to our politics and to our, you know, our, our, our population. 
And he was the, you know, he wasn't the first. There were other people who tried, but they just didn't have the platform. They didn't have the stature and they they didn't get anywhere. And he got somewhere with it. And so I glommed on. And then the second thing for me was, you know, I'm a kind of a convert on the the foreign policy war. I wasn't a convert on immigration. I I had been there for for years. I I had believed that we needed to secure the border and do workplace enforcement and just cut back for a long time. Um, the war stuff I was a convert on because I was a pretty big believer in what the U.S. did immediately after 9-11. And by, you know, the late 2000s, I become disillusioned and thought that we made a lot of mistakes. And many of those were mistakes that I, I hadn't made them. I didn't have any you know, decision-making authority, but they were mistakes I participated in, in the sense that, you know, I was, a, I was a mid-level staffer in the Bush White House, and I helped them convince the American people that these were the right things to do. And I looked back and I realized these were the wrong things to do. We, we blew it. And uh, the Republican Party didn't seem to learn that lesson until Trump came along and said, you know, we shouldn't have done this stuff. And I thought, okay, yeah. So those two, and then trade was the third, and that's one where he convinced me where I had been a doctrinaire free trader, like most conservative Republicans are. They just think, well, free trade is good. It's good for economic growth. And I hadn't paid any attention to what it did to communities. And Trump made these arguments. And I just decided, I'm, I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to research it. And I did my own reading. What happened? What happened? What did NAFTA really do? You know, what did these trade deals do? And saw that they did a lot of damage. And then I went back to my specialty, which is political philosophy, it's like, well, you know, what are these great philosophers? What does Adam Smith say? What does Aristotle say? Let's read these things. And I realized that, you know, the conservative line, oh, trade is always, free trade is always good. It's not even borne out by the texts that the, you know, it is by some, you know. Uh, they can cite economists, you know, famous economists from the 20th century. But Adam Smith is pretty clear that free trade is not always good for the health and wealth of a nation. Uh, and I, I he, and. Trump forced me to revise my opinion on that. And so to me, those were the, those were the three issues. I mean, you could argue about being anti-PC, being anti-ruling class and all that. But the three big issues of 2016 were immigration, foreign policy, and trade. Immigration, I, I had been there forever. Foreign policy, I had not, but I had already revised my opinion by the time Trump came along. And trade, he... He forced me to revise my opinion. So by the end of the day, I said, these are the three issues of this election, and he's right on all three of them. I support him. End of story. Yeah, uh, I agree with you on, on the um, the Anon thing. Like, uh, uh, I don't know, to some people, it, it means more, like, it's a thing about um, uh, that, that it's sort of a... Uh, uh, if your face is attached, then, then it certainly does change the things that you have the range to say. And because there's a lot of people that are... They're anonymous, and they get really upset that people that uh, have their Christian name and employer list on their Twitter aren't as adventurous as they are with language. But it's like, uh, okay, yeah, well, that's just kind of how it goes. I mean, uh, I don't know about for America. For me, it's just a uh, a job thing, you know. Uh, and I, I don't plan to be that way forever. That, that's that's it. That's, that's inspiring. What you, the way you said the way it worked, but uh, yeah, I. I uh, Look, I lucked out. I mean, I, I, I don't tell the whole story now. I, I didn't have a clear plan. I was able to, I was in a corporate job. I was in New York. I was able to get out of that. I mean, I was able to get a job in the White House, which is not, you know, going to be available to like every person who is in Anon and needs an escape route. <laughs> uh, uh, and then I had this existing network of dear friends, uh, 
you know, who I knew were going to support me and, and find a place for me, kind of whatever happened, and they did. So, you know, I, I wouldn't encourage people to take risks because I took risks and it worked out for me. It might not work out for you, whoever you are. You got to be careful and gauge your own situation. Um, I'm just saying that that's, you know, I, 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 was, I was lucky, but, but I was also fortunate. Like I, I sort of knew that I had that network and I had that net of people, friends and institutions who were going to be looking out for me, whatever happened. And that made me more willing to take risks. It's like, I'm not actually just jumping. You know, there's nobody down there. There's people down there. Somebody's going to catch me. The part of the story I like is, you know, the, the, whenever censorship and comes up and or a, diff, a myriad of problems, people are like, why don't you just, well, will this make your own whatever? Well, you guys did yeah. make your own. <laughs> you made your yeah. own outlet. <laughs> you know, published yeah. your own article. You know, that, that's, that's not nothing. Thanks, yeah. for, thanks for talking to us now. I would love, at some time, we, I, I would, the, the, the topic of the dandy is, it's, I, think it, I mean, it's honestly, it, it does have some importance. It may, they may, well, I will leave that for the time. But also, <laughs> Taiwan. Taiwan is probably is an amazingly important uh, uh, issue. You've written about that just recently in um, Federalist. Federalist, yeah. And on American Greatness. I actually did two. One was in the Federalist, and one was in American Greatness. Do you have any, do you have anything to plug? Uh, well, like I said, I wrote a book called The Stakes, which came out in hardback in 2020, September, and it came out just last fall, November of 21 in paperback. So that's out. Still, even though it was written before the election, uh, still the regime analysis that we talked about, the political science of it is still highly relevant. So I'd urge people to get that. My latest article that I just wrote was called Blue America's Messaging Problem. It's gotten around a little bit. Uh, we talked about the themes of it. That's on the American mind. I'm currently working on about halfway through a parody of Plato's Republic, uh, which imagines, uh, you know, it's the, the city in speech, the ideal state, which is not a term we should use when talking about Plato, but I'll, I will explain that another time. Um, but from a woke perspective. So imagine Socrates as a diversity consultant <laughs> explaining to you how the world should be. Uh, so it's a kind of comedic but serious attempt to explain what they really believe and what they really like. Like Lysistrata, or how, I don't know how you pronounce the, this. Yeah, yeah. Lysistrata, yeah. yeah, the Aristophanes yeah. play. Where, yeah. Um, yeah, so this is called Beto's Republic. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and the main character is named Wokrates. We need a woke classics movement to get uh, Yale to you know get rid of all that uh, uh, white supremacist uh, classics uh, collection they have and send it to um, Hillsdale. 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 I, I I can look into this, but I think his library is doing yeah, okay. You, you know, <laughs> whenever whenever we complain about the university system in academia, somebody always chimes in like, hey, except like Hillsdale, they're they're a good school. Like, 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 yeah, it is. I wish there were more of them, but you know, it's hard. To, it's hard to do. It's hard to. Just hiring faculty is difficult. You know, if you were to create, how could you, how, how would you create another Hillsdale from scratch? You're going to have to hire 200 or I don't know how many, something like that, teachers. And uh, yeah, there's plenty of PhDs floating around that need jobs, but how many of them are actually good, know what they're talking about, and are going to teach it the way that we want them to teach it? There's, there's surprisingly few. Thanks for joining us. It, it, that, was, that was very awesome. Thank you. Glad to do Real it. Real pleasure. All right. Good night. Let's just.